the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on gotodobbs.com now. For over two decades, E&B Granite has been St. Louis's trusted name for kitchen, bathroom, and outdoor space renovations that are guaranteed to bring new life into your living spaces. Their skilled team will provide you with personalized customer service, fast turnaround times, and prices you won't find with big box stores. Support local and schedule free consultation at enbgranite.com or call them at 314-645-9300 or better yet, stop by the showroom and explore their massive inventory. Again, that's enbgranite.com. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Goes to Mikula, then to Thomas in the far corner. Clearing attempt blocked. They give it up and score. Thomas tried to pass it to the middle. They give it up on the turnover. And the Flames burn the Blues on that one. They regain the 2-1 lead. Falk makes the play, gives it up. Flames on the backhand. They score. Two bad turnovers here in the third period late have hurt the Blues big time. 3-1 Calgary. Then Thomas turns it over again. Pass comes to Dubé for the empty net. Shoots it in and they score. And it's 4-1 Calgary behind him. And that's going to do it. Sloppy puck play in the third period in their own end. Burns the Blues in a big way tonight. 4-1 the final, a game that was 1-1 halfway through the third period. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Boy, you were you were super, super up and high yesterday, and now you just sound depressed, man. What happened? Welcome to the St. Louis Blues. Did you go to another eye doctor season. appointment? <laughs> yeah, they told me that I wear a uh, petite... Size glasses. If you want more context on that conversation, <laughs> check out the podcast from yesterday, 101ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you can find it. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. We're broadcasting live from the EB Granite Studios out at the Centene Community Ice Center. That call that you heard coming back from break is what it sounded like yesterday, right here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN, as the Blues lose 4 to 1 against the Calgary Flames. Alex, this is very simple. When the postscript is written on the 2023 Blues season, it will say, here lies the St. Louis Blues, cause of death, turnovers, giveaways, nonsensical decisions. Sloppy play. And that is what we saw last night. You can break down each of the individual goals, and we can do that if you guys want to, but it's pretty simple. Buchnevich passed to Thomas in the slot. Thomas tries to send a pass in front of the net to Rosen. Two sticks in the way, turnover. Two on one, going the other way, goal. You were considered play-by-play of your future, buddy? Thomas puck in the corner in in their own zone. Pass to the middle of the ice for no reason whatsoever. All he had to do was send it up the boards, turnover, score the other way. Third goal, Achari skates it behind the net, bumped off the puck. Falk passes it to nobody in particular. Ends up going straight to Coleman. Goal, Calgary. I mean, it's just, it's, they're shooting themselves in the foot. That's what's so frustrating about the game last night, Alex, is this, 
I guess you give some credit to Calgary, to Foley in particular. He made some good plays. But it's just bad passes. It's hope plays. It's not executing on the power play. They had opportunities. You go one for one on the PK, good job. You go 0 for 3 on the uh, power play, you're not going to win many games like that. This is not a team that is going to win a whole lot of games at 5-on-5. Five five. We've talked about the numbers. They're not very good for this team at 5-on-5 five five and haven't been even during the winning streak. Special teams have been good for them, though. Last night they weren't. And you end up giving up these turnovers, something that we hadn't seen as much of lately. We were talking about that yesterday with the predictable play. They reappear, and it looked a lot like the games that we saw early on in the season when this team was going through that eight-game losing streak. And really, sometimes hockey is simple. Last night, that was a simple game. The turnovers lost it for you. Yeah, and you know, the first goal I really wasn't that upset with um, because I liked the aggressiveness from the Blues. I probably would have preferred somebody to take a shot rather than make that extra pass. And that's what Craig Bruby talks about there. You know, not making those extra passes, taking yeah, the Thomas shot when you get it. There. If Thomas shoots there, the puck's maybe a rebound and it goes to Buchnevich or Callie Rosen and you might be talking a goal or you're not talking that puck being taken away in mid-transition when you had four guys pushing offensively, one guy going for a line change and then you get the odd man rush the other way. But I, I like the aggressiveness because the Blues capitalized on a sloppy line change by Calgary. They just didn't convert. So them's hockey, that happens. I wasn't upset about it. The third period is where it stung because this is what, and Curbs was talking about this on postgame last night, and Craig Bruby has brought this up before. It's just situational maturity. It's just knowing when to make the certain play. Like we love Ryan O'Reilly because Ryan O'Reilly knows when to make a certain play. Where in the third period, you're not trying to make a stretch pass through the middle of the ice in your own zone behind the net with there's 10 minutes to go and it's a 1-1 score. You're maybe making the simpler play up the board. And you know what Thomas was doing. He was trying to make that outlet pass. Yeah, it was going to Booch, right? Isn't Booch. that who he saw? Yeah, and then I think the Falk one you could kind of see. I think Braden Shen was the one up the board. But the problem is Calgary knows that too. Calgary knows that the Blues like to do those outlet passes. Calgary knows that it's a 1-1 score and the Blues are going to try and get a little aggressive and they jump in front of that. That's the situational maturity for St. Louis, and this has been the narrative of the team. It's turnovers. They make the mistake in their own end in the wrong time, and they're unable to come back from it. And for St. Louis, not only did you make those mistakes, but you weren't getting anything going offensively. Yeah. You were you were creating chances, but they weren't high-danger chances, and you really weren't getting the shots that you got in the third period against Calgary on Tuesday night. And well, that's when, because they didn't shoot. Like well, the first period, they didn't shoot. And then the second and third period, they just didn't play well. And when you combine it all, it's just like, I thought they played okay for the most part in the first period, but they weren't shooting the puck. The best line in that. They were passing up so many good opportunities. The best line in that game, in my opinion, was Jake Neighbors' line and then Nikita Alley. Like, if I had a 100%. one through four, Neighbors' line was number one. Alexandrov's lines was number two. And then you put in the top two lines, and there is your problem in this hockey game. Last night, the Thomas line was outshot at five on five, nine to nothing. Nine to nothing in terms of shots on goal at five on five. You go look at every team's number one line, and look, everybody has off nights, I get that, but you look at every team's top line, even in their worst game, I don't think they're going with zero shots on goal at even strength. And I think that it needs to be said because I saw a lot of people saying like, oh, Thomas and Kyru stink. This is why you can't build around these guys. No. Thomas, Kyru, and Buchnevich have been three of the best players on the team all year long. And that line being constructed the way that it has been, it's a significant part of why the Blues are even in this position right now to have meaningful games in mid-January. So 
it's a bad game. It happens. I'm not too worried about it. Does Thomas have some of those passes where you look at it and you say, man, can't have that one? Or does he pass up good looks at shots where you say to yourself, man, I just, I wish he would shoot more? Yeah. Does Kyrou have nights where it doesn't look like he's fully engaged and you wish he was skating a little better, he was more aggressive offensively because you know he's got that in him? Sure. Does Bucinavich have some of those same moments that uh, that uh, that Thomas has where you're like, man, if he would just shoot more often, this guy could be a 35-goal scorer by the end of the season. Absolutely. All of those things can be true, and also they're all tremendous hockey players who this team is and should be building around. So last night, off night for them, bad game overall for that line. I have full faith that they'll get it back on track, and that is one of the lines that I don't worry about too much in the big picture. But when they don't play well, Alex, I think this is the biggest thing. This team's not deep enough right now scoring-wise. Right to be able to overcome a night in which that line is outshot nine to nothing at five on five. Absolutely. You know, I, I kind of compare it to parenting and I can't do that yet because I've only have a one year old, but just thinking about it, like y- your kids don't learn unless they make the mistakes themselves. That's- Are you going to compare that line to the puppy dog? Are we doing the Mike Hoffman thing again where it's pooping all over the floor and you got to pick it up and eventually we it learns gonna, to be potty trained? I thought we were going to do the, the, uh, the Billy Madison. You go out there and you find your bleeping dog. <laughs> No, what I'm saying is like, you know, your kids got to learn to make mistakes every once in a while, and they won't make those mistakes unless you give them the freedom to do that. You got to touch that stove to find out that it's hot. You got to stick the fork in the outlet to figure out that that's going to electrocute you, right? How many times did you do that before you figured it Way out? Way too many times. Also ate a lot of paint chips when I was a child, but that's not, uh, that's not for here and now. That's for another time we can discuss. You're not going to get to the point where Thomas and Kairou and Buchnevich are going to be the faces of your franchise unless these moments happen. And I think we've talked about this before. I know I talked about it on pregame with Joe. Go back to that New Jersey Devils game that the Blues played. Like, New Jersey is not where they are at right now without Jack Hughes and Nico Heischer having these problems for the first few years of their career in New Jersey. They're top picks. Everybody sees that and they say, well, this is awful. Why are these guys not playing? They're number one overall picks. The same is happening with right now with Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo and Pablo Buchnevich. People are looking at it and saying, well, this is terrible. Why are you giving these guys $8 million deals for eight years? They can't even play defense. They have to learn that you can't make an outlet pass in the third period in a 1-1 game with 10 minutes to go. They have to learn that you can't stand around and expect your linemate to defend the player that is your man on the ice because that's going to result in a goal. So if you want to be ready for the exit of O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko. If you don't want to hit a hard rebuild and deal with this for 8, 10 years, then you're going to have to deal with the ups and downs of Kairou Thomas and Buchnevich. But for me, the struggles that I saw last night's game goes into the, the film room today at practice, goes onto the ice tomorrow night against Tampa Bay, and I would almost guarantee you that they're going to have a polar opposite game tomorrow night than what they did last night. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line. This one comes from the 618. Guys, everybody riding this emo- uh, emotional roller coaster is going to realize eventually that this is simply a 500 hockey team. They'll win some games, they'll lose some games, and it's just the way that it's going to be all year. That's what the Blues are this season. They're a 500 team, and the quicker that people realize that, the better. I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, Alex. See, I don't think they're a 500 team. I, I think they're better than a 500 team. I, I was talking to Mike McKenna about this at the game last night. Why I think, do you believe that? Because I, they've shown signs that they can string wins together, but they've also shown signs where their play dips off. But 
what we've seen at least since the middle of December has been fixing the problems before they become bigger problems. Like, I'm not seeing three, four, five, six-game losing streaks. You'll see them lose a couple of games. Montreal's a perfect example. You play a bad game against Montreal, you fix it against Minnesota, and then you fail, you continue it versus Calgary, you lose this one. Maybe you don't play well against Tampa on Saturday, but you fix it by Ottawa. I, I asked Mike his thoughts on this team, and Mike McKenna basically said last night, he said, I think this team's good, but this team is going to miss the playoffs. I think this team is the exact same team of that 2017-2018 team that is going to fight for one of those playoff spots and fall short in the final game or the final week of the season. But I don't think this is a 500 team because a 500 team is the Ottawa Senators right now. It's the Arizona Coyotes right now. I think this Blues team is better than that. Would we feel differently, though, if the overtime games went a little bit more in favor of the opponent? Because since mid-December, since December 11th, the Blues have gone to overtime seven different times. They've played games that end in regulation nine times, and they're five and four in those games. When they go to overtime, they win more often than not. And I do wonder, like, because they've racked up these points in overtime, they put the, the point on the board, or they finish out, and they either win in a shootout or win in overtime, is that maybe skewing our opinion of the team to believe that they're better than they actually are by winning at three on three or winning in a shootout. I think that there's something to that because when you look at the overall results right now, they're five and four in regulation and they gone to overtime seven different times. That's a 500 hockey team in my mind. And I think that's kind of what they are. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. When you're without Ryan O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko and Logan Brown, who we thought was going to be a significant piece coming into the season, you don't have Tory Krug, you don't have Robert Bortuzzo, you don't have Nick Letty. Man, the fact that you're a 500 hockey team without all of those players that I just mentioned is a bit of an accomplishment, especially when you take into account the fact that I don't think Pareko has had the season that any of us were expecting. Falk's been just okay for the most part this year. You've had that top line that has gone through some struggles at time this season. So I think all things considered, a 500 season at this point is probably about what we could have expected given all of the context that we're now familiar with. Yeah, I, I mean, probably. I just, I, I think this, I just feel like a 500 team is a team that, I don't know, maybe I'm just, because people are texting in saying that I'm describing a 500 team. I just don't think this team is going to finish with a 500 record. I think they'll be above 500, but I think they're going to be a team that looks like a team that's just inconsistent. So maybe that is a 500. That maybe that what is. you're describing is like, we don't conceptualize I, what a 500 team is because we haven't seen it in so long, man. I, I like guess. Other than the pandemic season where that year just from start to finish felt different. Um we, we haven't really recognized what this looks like for a while. I think the inconsistencies of what we're watching right now is essentially what a 500 hockey club yeah, should look like. And maybe I just I guess the way I look at it is I'm thinking a 500 hockey club that percent point percentage is going to be 500, which I don't think it will. But you could be 575 and still be a 500 team. So I guess I understand that there. One text I did want to address. Sure. Uh, actually, two of them. One says, Alex has his blue glasses on if he thinks this team is better than a 500 team, which I guess we've kind of uh, fixed right there. Uh, all of the expert analysts said going into this season that the Blues were going to miss the playoffs and look at them now. Yeah, all of the expert analysts said the exact same thing about the Blues team last year, and they found a way to outperform that. Go back and look at that team on paper. Without David Perron, 
anybody who has watched hockey and has watched the Blues thought that this Blues team was going to be a top three, top four team in the Western Conference. Nobody thought that they would be performing this way. And the other one, going back to Thomas and Cairo from the 3 one the place to learn is in the minors, not at the NHL level. That couldn't be more incorrect because you learn in the minors and the game completely shifts when you get to the NHL because the speed of the game is different. You could keep Jordan Cairo or Robert Thomas down in the minors as long as you want, which makes no sense because Robert Thomas has been here for four years and Cairo's been here for three. Those guys would go down to the minors and just look like the greatest hockey players you've ever seen. Like Logan (laughs) Brown dominated the minor leagues last season to where they had to call him up to the NHL. You you say that those players need to learn in the minors before they come to the NHL. Those players will never, never be ready for the NHL until they learn at the NHL level. This is what is happening for them right now. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. In about 15 minutes or so, we'll give you our picks for this weekend in the NFL slate. There are three games that I'm just going to be totally honest with you. Go out, hang out with your significant other. Sunday morning, playing yourself a brunch. Enjoy it. You'll earn yourself some brownie points. It's better than watching the game that is provided for us on Sunday afternoon. So we'll get to our picks coming up in about 15 minutes and discuss what would have to happen for some of these underdogs to win outright. But coming up next, there is some Cardinals news. A couple of players have avoided arbitration with the Cardinals, and one of them, it sounds like, could be a player that the Cardinals are looking to sign long-term. We'll tell you who that is coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Guys, it's arbitration day. Woohoo! Yeah! Is that something we celebrate here? Not really. Today's the final day to settle arbitration uh, cases. The Cardinals still have a number of players that are to be determined, but it looks like they're starting to settle those already. The news is coming in fast and furious, Alex. Mm. The Cardinals, according to John Ditton, were looking to get long-term extensions done with, potentially, Jordan Montgomery, Tommy Edmond, and Ryan Helsley. They have instead settled with Jordan Montgomery on a one-year deal at $10 million, which is roughly the range that we were expecting. I think I had seen projected like $11 million, so it's it's right in line with what we expected it to be. They have also settled with Jack Flaherty. He has settled at a contract of $5.4 million this season on a one-year deal. Both Montgomery and Flaherty are entering the final year of arbitration for them, so it's still possible they could get an extension done with one, maybe both of them, probably just one <laughs> of them. Gonna say, just one of them. Yeah, but that that's where we're at with them. The other players that are still to be determined with their arbitration cases are Jordan Hicks. He's in his final year. You've got Dakota Hudson, Tyler O'Neill, Tommy Edmond. Please just settle with Tyler O'Neill. Please, please, please don't don't push. You, wanna, this thing you don't want a ten-year, hundred million dollar extension? I, I mean, last year, remember how Worth poorly it. it went when that went into the season? Uh, Not good. I, I don't remember who brought that up on our show. Uh, Tommy Edmond, Ryan Helsley, Andrew Kisner, and Hennessy Cabrera. Those are all the players that they still have cases to be determined with. Alex, I. I don't mind just playing this year to year right now with most of these guys. Now, if you wanted to like buy out the arbitration years for Tommy Edmond, I'd be cool with that. If you wanted to buy out the arbitration years like they did with Giovanni Gallegos for Ryan Helsley, cool. That sounds good. I'm not all that interested, though, in a long-term extension, like a five-plus year deal with any of these guys personally. 
I would be for Tommy Edmond because I think you're pretty much committing to him as your shortstop now, especially if you're not sure with Mason Wynn. And if Mason Wynn does become what you're hoping, then Tommy Edmond can be a second baseman slash utility guy. I mean, the bat has shown you it plays in the last three seasons. You know the defense is gold glove caliber. Uh, he would. Plus, I don't think he would cost you a lot if you were able to get it done now. So would you do – he's estimated to get about $2.5 million this year in arbitration, which means next year you're probably looking at like – six-ish million dollars if he continues on the same trajectory and then like 10 to 15 million in year three it's typically the way that it would work so we're talking i'd go five years 60 mil three years 25 ish million before you get to unrestricted free agency add in another three years at like 15 a year talking about 45 so six years 75 million dollars this is impressive uh i would see if he would do three year or you say what? Your three years? Six years, seventy-five-ish million dollars, probably what you're looking at. Something I'd like probably that. Probably do that. Our five years, sixty mil for him, because then he could, depending on what what his age would be, he'd be like twenty. So essentially, 30. the Paul DeYoung deal. Yeah, I would do that. And, and I mean, like the difference between Paul DeYoung and Tommy Edmond is you saw one season of that with Paul DeYoung. Like you've gotten three seasons, despite people saying like Tommy Edmond is not good. Tommy Edmond should not get that. Tommy Edmond every season is the exact same player that you expect him to be. And like I mentioned, he's a gold glove caliber defender. You know you could play him at short, at second. You could probably use him in the outfield. If you're telling me I could get him locked up for five years, $12 million each year, I would do that right now. He's the only one I would do that with, though. Yeah, there's not a guy on the Cardinals roster that I'd give a contract extension to in terms of guys that are in arbitration right now. Uh, I, I just want to, to BK's point, I want to play it year to year. I wouldn't even worry about buying out their arbitration years. I wouldn't worry about Edmonds. I wouldn't worry about uh, anybody else. Helsley's, for example, who's in arbitration this year as well. The only guy that I would look to sign a contract extension to would probably be Miles Michaelis, but it's not. he's not an arbitration player. He's a guy that I would just look to bring in. I know what I've had in him for the years that he's been here in St. Louis. He's been very good for the Cardinals. You're familiar with him. Sign him to a contract extension. He's a proven veteran to add to your roster for, in terms of looking at your rotation for 2024. But with all these guys, I would just play this case by case. I don't mind them settling with Jordan Montgomery or Jack Flaherty at this point. I do the same thing for Ryan Helsley and Tom Yemen. There, there's nobody that I look at and go, I have to lock them up because they're going to outprice themselves if they have really good years by the time we get to year two or three in their arbitration hearings. I, I If you had to... If I told you you have to re- extend one of these players, who would you go with, Tanner? Obviously, they don't have to do this, but just under under these rules of engagement, which one would you go with? One of the arbitration players you have to extend. Who would you feel best about? If I had to extend one, I probably would do... Oh, man. I, I think I would probably do Montgomery. I would try to get him on an extension that would be team-friendly because I could see where if he has a really good year, he outpriced himself and he leaves the Cardinals uh, in free agency next year. Flaherty I wouldn't want him to do because of the health concerns. Hicks, kind of the same thing. And then I look at these guys in year two of arbitration like Hudson, O'Neill, Edmund, Helsley, Kisner, Cabrera. I don't, a, I don't want to do it for a reliever. Uh, sorry, Kisner, your backup catcher. Not going to happen. Uh, and Edmund and O'Neill just haven't seen enough to show that he's – needs a contract extension because of the injuries. And Edmund, I, I don't think Edmund will ever outprice himself from me, so I, I wouldn't be worried about having to lock him up on a contract extension. Yeah, I, I think I would go Tommy Edmund just because I feel confident that he's going to be a good player throughout the life of the deal. Like, if you have Tommy Edmund and he's making 10 to $12 million, 
I think you essentially have the Colton Wong deal. And we just saw that Colton Wong was tradable on that contract. You know, like, I mean, in a worst case scenario, there's going to be another team that looks at Tommy Edmond. And like, if you end up having Mason Wynn become the player that we expect or that the Cardinals expect him to be, and you've still got Brendan Donovan at second base, maybe it ends up being that Nolan Gorman uh, transforms defensively and he's able to play second base for you as well. And so two years from now, you're saying, ah, you know, we've got Tommy Edmond on this long-term extension, but we feel good about our players that are playing up the middle right now. What could Tommy Edmond get us in a trade? And these are the kinds of things that the front office has to be considering. I think he then still would have a little bit of trade value the way that Colton Wong just did for the Milwaukee Brewers, and you could deal him elsewhere. So you're not going to be quote-unquote stuck with a guy like Edmond. So I think that's one that I would consider. He would probably be at the top of my list. I'm just always skeptical with pitchers. I, I am somebody that in general would like to play it year by year with pitchers, especially like left-handed pitchers who rely a lot on their fastball. Because when that goes, if that goes, and if they're not quite as good with it against right-handed hitters, boom, you're done. Like, it's just, it can go so quickly for for a left-handed pitcher. So Montgomery makes me a little nervous, even though he has had success up to this point in his career. Yeah, I mean, Montgomery... He would be number two on my list. Montgomery though. would be two on my list. I would re-sign him over Miles Michaelis. Um, but I, I don't know if I'm going anything more than three years with Montgomery. Tommy Edmonds, the guy for me, and, and I, I just... I think you're committing him to be a shortstop because you didn't do anything in the last two seasons with a free agent market. You didn't want to spend the money there. I think you're committing to Tommy Edmond, and Mason Wynn, in my opinion, is still probably two years away. So I don't know what the harm would be in locking up a player like that for that steal of a price and have him where you know, even if Mason Wynn's not ready, Tommy Edmond's there. But when Mason Wynn is ready, Tommy Edmond is going to be moving all over the field for us and can help us in any situation possible. Tanner, the Athletic put together a list of the top 12 remaining free agents. And I'm going to go ahead and throw these names out there so for the listeners, they know who we're kind of referencing here. But uh, the free agency list is certainly picked over at this point. So much so that Michael Walker, according to The Athletic, is the best remaining free agent on the market. Other players that are out there that made their top 12 remaining free agents are Jerkson Profar, Elvis Andrews, Zach Greinke, Trey Mancini, Andrew McCutcheon, who signed earlier today. He's going back to Pittsburgh, which I think is a really cool story. Hopefully he'll finish his career out in Pittsburgh. Adam Duvall, who we've had a million different conversations about. And this is where the list basically becomes a list of the guys that we talked about last year. Josh Harrison, Jose Iglesias, Gary Sanchez, David Peralta, Tommy Pham. Those are the players that end up making their top 12. And then some of the also mentioned include Andrew Chafin, Will Smith, Araldis Chapman, and Brian Anderson. Guys, if you could go out there and you said, okay, it's going to be a pretty reasonable price at this point in free agency. Who would you want the Cardinals to target among that group of free agents that still remain? I, Do I have to take any of them? I mean, if you don't want to, you could just say, like, hey, I, I don't want to go out to the market anymore. I'm good with the, the team that the Cardinals have. I just don't think – I don't think any of these names make you better. Uh, so I, I think Andrew Chafin definitely makes you better. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. I guess I'm not giving enough credit to Andrew Chafin – I'm looking more at all of the position players. I don't think any of these make sense. Like, none of these make sense. So, yeah, Andrew Chafin would probably be the only one I would say is worth going after. Uh, I, I had interest in Andrew McCutcheon, although it sounds like he's signing with the Pittsburgh Pirates, so you don't have to worry about that. But other than that, no, I, I think Andrew Chafin would probably be it. 
I, I agree with Andrew Chafin. I, I think that guy's a stud. You can bring him in on a one-year deal, and it, you would have no regrets about it. And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but he he adds some certainty to the back end of your bullpen. Right now, you've only got two guys that I truly trust with swinging his stuff back there, and that's Helsley and Gallegos. And Gallegos swinging his stuff isn't isn't that isn't that great. It's not as good as Helsley's stuff. Chafin's got legit stuff from the left side. You don't have to worry about Thompson or a Cabrera bounce back to fill that seventh inning role. So Chafin would be there for me. One of the position players that I would have interest in, and I don't think you Cardinals would do it, and I don't think you they would even reason if they did want to do it, it'd probably be about halfway through spring training when they can get a really long look at what Jordan Walker looks like, would be David Peralta. Because if Walker's going to be in the minors and you say, oh, man, he looked kind of overmatched in spring training, maybe it's going to be closer to the All-Star break when we have when we decide to call up uh, Jordan Walker. You're looking at a starting outfield of O'Neill, Carlson, and Newtbar, and your fourth outfielder is Yepes slash Burleson. And Burleson, I didn't see a lot from last year. Maybe that changes in spring training. But if he looks overmatched again, I would go get a veteran to hit from the left side that could be kind of that fourth outfield role, and Peralta would be a guy that could fit that spot for the I'd Cardinals. i really give those reps to the guys you got in your system right now. The Chafin thing is weird, right? Like This is a left-handed pitcher that, since the start of the 2018 season, is 42% above league average when it comes to his ERA. His strikeouts per nine is at 10. Strikeout-to-walk ratio is 3-1. to one. He basically never gets hurt. Here's the games played, games appeared in since 2018. 77, 77, 15 in the 2020 pandemic season. 71 and 65. This guy is available for, he's like, if Whitgren was good, <laughs> that's Andrew Chafin. He's always available. So he's a former first round pick. He's been really good now as a lefty for five full major league seasons. I don't understand why he's still available. He was one of my top options at the start of free agency. If they could find a way to get him, if he's, I mean, still out there. I wonder if he's injured. I wonder if he's got something. Well, I'm just, so I'm looking at his baseball savant page, and the only reason I mention this is because BK mentions, but this was for starters that you mentioned, was fastballs with lefties. And look, he's still got a really good chase rate, 89th percentile in chase rate, but his fastball numbers were way down last year. Fastball velocity, 23rd percentile. Fastball spin rate, 21st percentile. But it's and barrel been that percentage way. was pretty low, too. So, But it's I, been maybe that way for something. three years. Like it, 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 Maybe that's something, but that's how he pitches. Like he, He's been that guy for, for his entire career, and it's never been an issue for him. Um, and maybe at some point that'll go, but... Man, for the last three years, his fastball velocity hasn't been very good, and he's been one of the best lefties in all of baseball. So that that would be the guy that I would be going out there and trying to acquire personally. Uh, coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll get to ask us anything. The Air Comfort Service text line is 314-399-9646. But coming up next, it's time for a pick for this upcoming weekend. Who are we looking at in these playoff matchups? And what is the case for teams like the Seahawks, the Dolphins, and the Ravens? Not even to win, just to make these games competitive. We'll tell you next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. So coming up this weekend is Super Wild Card Weekend. Super duper! 
Not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but six games oh. from Saturday up until Monday night. And Alex, we're not going to do our traditional weekend pick em, but I do want to go through these yes. games individually. So does that mean nobody loses this week? Correct. Oh, to discuss BK find a way to lose. what we are anticipating. BK's our honorary petite loser. And we'll go in chronological order, starting with the first game of the weekend, which is Seahawks at the 49ers. Now, there is some call for rain in this game. It is possible that Santa Clara ends up a little bit rainy, a little bit muddy uh, for this game between the Seahawks and the 49ers. The 49ers are a nine and a half point home favorite. What is the case, and Tanner, I'm gonna go to you for this one. What is the case for the Seahawks to make this close? Not to win outright, because I think that's just a crazy thought. What is the case for them to keep this close? Uh, for the Seahawks to keep this game close, one, they can't turn the ball over and give San Francisco extra possessions. That's an easy start for it. Okay. Boy, that, boy that's let like... Me, um, let me put this another way. If, what is the case for the Seahawks to keep this close? That isn't the case for literally every game that has ever been played well, in the history of football. Well, they need to score I, touchdowns. I, I felt that backhand from BK. Uh, but it, it starts with... the they, computer. They've got, to, they've got to slow down McCaffrey in the running game because they can't allow him to beat them. That's one of the things that they struggled with all year was they were terrible against their run. They've got to find a way to to crowd the box and I was reading this morning on ESPN.com and they were breaking down the game was Purdy killed them when they went into zone coverage last uh, last time they played so they need to find a way to stop the run and then be able to match up man-to-man when they were in man-to-man Purdy had some struggles against the San Francisco 49ers if they can do that they give themselves a chance as long as Geno doesn't turn over the football because that is key with Geno Smith so that's how they keep this close and honestly that's how they're going to have to find a way to win they're just going to have to be able to they're not going to win this game in a shootout they've got to find a way to limit the san francisco 49ers if they can hold them to 10 to 17 points then they're going to have a shot to win this football game to me it comes down to eliminating christian mccaffrey like if you force brock purdy to have to throw the ball i trust seattle's defense in terms of not allowing those big booming plays if you find a way to eliminate christian mccaffrey and those those quick rushes or him getting involved in the short passing game that can just continue to pick up those first downs and chip away at Seattle, keep their defense on the field. I think you just wear them down. And I think by the second half, you're probably talking about an, a, a exacerbated Seattle Seahawks team. Although I do know that there are some reports that Pete Carroll uh, is officially a backwards cap guy. Yeah, yeah. Are you, are you a Pete Carroll guy now, officially? He, I think he I had, might have to join the T-Bone train of Seattle plus nine and a half. He had not worn a backwards cap, or he, not, he had not worn a hat, really, in Seattle in the last decade. And then suddenly on Sunday, he shows up to a game where it's raining, wearing a hat. And yesterday at practice, not only did he wear a hat, he then went to the interviews and turned it around for the media so, portion. And how old is Pete Carroll? Uh, 71, I believe. So you would say that 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 myth has been busted from Randy Carricker that only children wear caps backwards. Yeah, I mean, Pete Carroll turned 71 in September, so I would say that that myth is officially busted. Pete Carroll is a stud. I think that this game comes down to one thing and one thing only. Stopping the... Are creating turnovers. Yeah, creating turnovers, Scoring stopping touchdowns. the run, and finishing your drives in the end zone. Scoring if you can do those three too. things, I would say that's probably a good day for the Seahawks. I just want to punch him. It, it comes down to Brock Purdy. I mean, if Brock Purdy reverts back into the guy that we all assumed he was going to be when he started for the Seahawks or the 49ers, then I, maybe the Seahawks have a chance. 
other than that, man, I don't see any way. I mean, I looked this up yesterday. I was trying to figure out, okay, what what are the odds of these significant underdogs just covering? Covering the spread, much less winning outright. Looked this up and found the following. Teams favored by at least nine and a half points are 11 and two against the spread over the last decade. They're 12 and one straight up. So if you bet on the hit heavy favorite, you are winning at like 90% of the time. The only upset that is on this list is the Titans when they went into Baltimore and beat the Ravens in 2020. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this Seahawks team is not the Baltimore I've, Ravens. I've got some nerdy numbers. not going numbers. up against that Baltimore Ravens team. I've got some nerdy numbers to throw at you. Now, granted, they're not 100% in favor of me, but they're somewhat in favor of me. Teams that have won the first two meetings and then hosted the third meeting in a season series matchup, 14-9. and nine. That's what I'm saying. Against the spread or straight up? Straight up. 14-9. There's a chance. There's a chance, Brandon. Okay. Yeah, Brandon. Uh, so that is the first game. Go ahead and go to, go to brunch. You don't need to watch that one. Uh, the second game that day is actually what I believe to be the most interesting game. There is a little bit of news related to this one that was just reported. According to Lindsey Thurry of ESPN.com, Mike Williams suffered a small non-surgical fracture in his back that was not found on the initial x-rays or MRIs. It has now been found. He did not progress the way that they expected. They did further tests. He is now expected to miss the next two to three weeks. Good thing he was playing in the fourth quarter of a completely meaningless game in week 18. Brandon Staley, you are going to get fired if you lose this game. Nice. That's the backdrop to Chargers at the Jaguars. Chargers right now a one and a half point favorite. In some places, it is now up to two and a half points in favor of the Chargers on the road. Alex, I think the Chargers are the better team here. I think they're the more talented team. And for some reason, in the back of my mind, I can't get over the fact that I think the Chargers or the, the Jaguars are going to win. I think a lot of that comes down to I believe in Doug Peterson in a way that I don't believe in Brandon Staley. And I think that the Chargers offensive coordinator is a dunce. Their quarterback, Justin Herbert, has the lowest average depth of target in the NFL this season, despite the fact that he has arguably the best arm in the NFL. So I'm going to take the Chargers to win. I think this one's going to be really close, though, man. And there is a strong argument in favor of the Jaguars. I'm taking the Jaguars in this one, too. I, 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 Everything you just said, I don't trust Brandon Staley. I trust Doug Peterson. I think without Mike Williams, the Chargers offense is vulnerable because you take away Keenan Allen. And if you find a way to eliminate Austin Eckler, which has been done a lot this season, I think the Jaguars are the better offensive team because there's no Mike Williams. So I, I just imagine being told that you have to win this game or you're fired. There's a lot of pressure on that. Yeah. And I, the pressure on Brandon Staley, he has not been able to handle pressure. So I just I think the Jaguars are going to win this game. I don't believe in the Chargers. I'm with Alex. I, I, I like the Jaguars in this one. They've got the home field advantage. We've talked about it. We're a team that's barely above 500, below 500. They get this home field game and they play well. And I expect the Jags to do that. I love their offense. And it does come down to coaching for me. I, I do not trust Brandon Staley to figure a way to win this game. I see him doing something dumb, and it ends up costing the L.A. Chargers. Next game up, Dolphins at the Bills. Another one of those where it's like, ah, what is the case? What is the case for the Dolphins? It is now turnovers. official. Yeah, tur turnovers finishing their drives and Touchdowns. finding a way to make things difficult for Josh Allen. 
The Dolphins are a 13 and a half point road underdog Good in this God. one going that's, into Buffalo. That's Tanner's specialty. And somehow it still doesn't feel big enough. I saw earlier today on ESPN.com, their projected spread was like 22 points in favor of the Bills. Skylar Thompson is officially going to be starting for Miami. They couldn't get uh, Teddy Bridgewater ready to go for this one. He's got a broken finger or something. We don't know what the status is for Raheem Mostert as well. He also could at a minimum be limited, possibly miss this game as well. Alex, is this just as simple as the Bills basically got to buy here? I don't know if it's that simple because, I mean, we have seen the Bills in games that we feel like they should just steamroll the opponent, not live up to those expectations. I do think with the playoffs in front of them and with everything that took place last year, I give them the upper hand, and I think they easily cover the spread. But you ask the question, how do the Dolphins, or what's the case for the Dolphins? The case for the Dolphins is Waddle and Hill. Regardless of the quarterback, I mean, we're seeing Brock Purdy have success with Debo Samuel and Christian McCaffrey and Brandon Ayuk. With with Waddle and Hill, if Skylar Thompson can keep it simple, if he can find ways to get the ball to those playmakers, I think that they can at least stay in this game with Buffalo because Buffalo's defense just has not impressed me this season. Um, but the problem is going to be I don't know how Dolphins stop Stephon Diggs and Josh Allen. And all their problem is that Skylar Thompson stinks. Yeah, and that's a big problem too. Uh, I The only way I can see the Dolphins even covering this spread because I would take Bills minus 13 and a half is if somehow like Josh Allen gets hurt. And, and I don't wish that upon him and I don't think it's going to happen. So I take the Bills minus 13 and a half in this one. I, I think they just roll. I can't see a scenario in which the Dolphins win. Skylar Thompson had two games where he spent where he took the majority of the snaps for the Dolphins this year. Both came against the Jets. He scored his team scored a total of uh, 28 points in those two games combined. I think this is a Bills uh, landslide victory. I think they went at like 34 to 10. Next one up, I think is the best game of the weekend, guys. Giants going on the road at the Vikings. Vikings are a three-point home favorite. All year, everybody's been calling the Vikings frauds. And all year, everybody's been wondering, I don't understand how the Giants are doing this. And so it makes for a super compelling matchup between these two teams. You don't have to watch this game till the fourth quarter because both of these teams are excellent in the fourth quarter and basically mediocre the rest of the games. What are you expecting in this one, Alex? I'm expecting the Giants to keep it close. My only concern for the Giants to win this game is I don't think they have a secondary piece that can eliminate Justin Jefferson the way that Jair Alexander did, the way that Sauce Gardner did. Um, But I do love the front pressure from the Giants, including Thibodeau. I think the Giants are going to put a lot of pressure on that offensive line. They're going to put a lot of pressure on Kirk Cousins to force him to make plays. I don't think Dalvin Cook is going to be relevant in this game. I think this game is either dictated by Justin Jefferson stealing the show or finding a way to eliminate Justin Jefferson and the defense is the reason that the Giants win. I would pick the Giants plus three in this one because I think even if they don't win, they keep this one close. 21-24, something like that. I'm not, con- I'm not confident that they win this straight up, but that point spread, I would go Giants. See, I'm actually kind of in the opposite here because I, I think the Vikings win this one by seven or ten. I, I think that they're going to take advantage of Daniel Jones. I think Danny Dimes is going to struggle in this one. I think you're finally going to see that the weapons for the Giants are non-existent, and they're going to have trouble offensively. I think the Vikings, they may struggle offensively, but I think they're good enough to where they can put up around that 20 to 27 point mark. But I think they're able to contain the Giants this time around. I think they win by seven or 10 in this one. So I would yeah. take them minus three. I, The Giants have become such a trendy pick this week that it makes me a little nervous. I like the Giants plus three just because I like that number. 24-21 feels like a score that it's easy to see how that would happen in a game like this 
That being said, I, I do think that the Vikings are better. I don't think the Vikings are very good, but I think sometimes we overstate just how bad they are. I don't think they're as good as the legit contenders in the NFC. I don't think they're as good as the Cowboys. I don't think they're as good as the Eagles. Those teams are on a separate um, category for me, or the 49ers. I think they're as good as the Giants, though. So I, I think I'll take the Vikings to win outright after thinking about the Giants all week. Um, but I, I do like the, the Giants plus the three points in this one. It feels like it that that's worth taking. Final game is Sunday night. Ravens at the Bengals. Bengals a nine-point favorite in this one, guys. I, I think this one's going to be super ugly. The Ravens defense has played extremely well down the second half of the season. Uh, they just re-signed their middle linebacker for a reason. I think they gave him too much money, but that's neither here nor there. I, the, the case for the Ravens is very simple. Uh, they make this as ugly as humanly possible and find a way to win like 13 to 10. I don't think they're capable of doing that. I don't think that they can stop the Bengals offense all day long. And therefore, I'm going to take the Bengals. I think they win outright, and I think they win like 24 to 10. It's just going to be so hard for the Ravens to be able to score. Same. I just think Cincinnati's just got a, a taste for blood right now. And I don't – anybody that gets in their way up until that AFC championship game I think is going to have a lot of issues. So I don't see any way, shape, or form that Baltimore keeps this close. I think this is going to be a simple victory for the Bengals. Yeah, I think it is too, and I think the Bengals blow them out. I, I could see this being like 35-10, and I'm not even sure Baltimore can put up 10. So I, I like the Bengals minus 9.5 here. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, I, I want to get into some qu or some Ask Us Anything. We'll do that coming up at 12.15. We're going to take a quick break here, though, because Chris, Chris Pronger, the Hockey Hall of Famer, going to join us coming up at the top of the hour. want to ask him about what it is going to be like, what the scene is going to be like this, this weekend in St. Louis as the Blues inducts their inaugural Blues Hall of Fame class. He'll be in St. Louis for that. He's going to talk to us about it coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Always happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line, especially when it is such a special weekend in St. Louis to be joined by the Hockey Hall of Famer and former Blues defenseman Chris Pronger. He is one of the members of the inaugural Blues Hall of Fame class. There's going to be a ceremony inducting that class tomorrow on the ice. That inaugural class includes Glenn Hall, Red Berenson, Scotty Bowman, Gary Unger, and all the players who already have their numbers up in the rafters. They are automatically inducted into this first class. It's a special thing what the St. Louis Blues are doing, and right now we are going out to the Brandon Crouppen Celebrity Line to talk over with Chris Pronger here on 101 ESPN. Prongs, we appreciate the time as always, man. I'm sure this is a special weekend for you. Uh, how you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you. So I let, let's just start out with this. I mean, when you heard that the Blues, uh, such a historic organization, were going to put this together for the first time, what, what were your thoughts on what this weekend would be? And now that it's here, uh, how excited are you to be a part of it? Well, Harry, I think, you know, just looking at the names that you just said, we're going into the hall, you know, iconic names uh, from the NHL and, and more importantly from their, their tenure here with the Blues organization. So 
uh, excited to be a part of the inaugural class and, and looking forward to uh, tomorrow night. Chris, when it, when it comes to something like this, and I mean, you've seen it all. You've seen the Hockey Hall of Fame ceremonies that take place. You know, you were a part of that Winter Classic alumni game here in St. Louis where you were around all of these former players. But how different is something like this? And, and I'm sure you've seen other NHL teams and arenas that have their ring of honors. But for somebody who spent so much time in St. Louis, what's the difference with something like this and all of these Blues players that you have played with, that you were spending your uh, time around when you were a player and guys that you looked up to when you were uh, when you were a kid? Well, you know, that's that's the great part of these types of events. You're able to, you know, reconnect with former teammates, uh, players that you played against potentially, or, or you know, some of the some of the the longtime players that uh, that we used to watch and, and love to hear the stories of uh, of the old days and reminisce and uh, that that's the fun part about these events is getting to getting to reconnect and, and hear all those stories even if you've heard them over and over again they're always entertaining and, and always a lot of fun to hear. Speaking of those stories, Prongs, I was talking with Curbs last night on post game, and he talked about, I guess, tonight at the MAC that fans are going to be able to watch on the Bally Sports app. Uh, you guys are having a roundtable, and it's going to be a roundtable of the guys whose numbers are retired up in the uh, rafters at Enterprise Center. And he said that I think it started at like 8 o'clock, and I said, man, I don't even know what time that's going to end because you put everybody down at a table, yourself, Bernie, uh, Al McKennis. Those stories are going to go on forever, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, as you know, some people like to bogart the mic and uh, <laughs> and take over, but uh, it's uh, you know it's all a lot of fun and and uh, uh, you know as I said, you know hearing hearing guys tell their stories and, and guys coming in and see the smiles and and laughter, it's uh, it's always great. Time. Prongs, I know some of those stories are not suitable for radio, but I am curious, based on some of the stories that you've heard uh, from a, a lot of the other guys are going to be inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame this weekend, who's the player that you wish you could have spent time with in the locker room, that you could have been their teammate, whether it's because you've heard stories about how gr- how great they were as dudes or or you just wish you could have played with them? Who's the guy? Uh, well, I, I, you know, our, our, our dear friend who we recently lost, how player would have been a a, a hoot to uh, to to play with, obviously for for a lot of different reasons. But uh, you know, I think you know, you know, having a chance to you know play with Bernie Federico and having a chance to play with uh, you know some of these old school goalies that didn't play with a mask. These guys are lunatics. So just you know, <laughs> hearing them and and hearing some of their stories, and you know, especially hearing people talk about. You know the the '50s, '60s, and '70s. I mean, Jimmy Roberts, uh, you know, was obviously a, a longtime coach, and uh, you know, to have him tell the stories of back when he was in Montreal and came to the Blues, and you know, all that all that lore and history behind it was uh, was a lot of fun, and and he, you know, he's obviously missed as well. Prongs, another guy that you played against and I don't believe unless it was on the Olympic stage or something like that that you got the honor to play underneath but Scotty Bowman and Scotty Bowman the stories I'm sure uh, run wild with somebody who has seen so much and was the head coach for the Blues in that uh, first season back in 1967 what were those teams like playing against when Scotty Bowman was the head coach because you had the pleasure or displeasure I guess of playing against those Red Wings teams for so many years 
Yeah, no, there was a lot of uh, battles. He's the uh, the king of the mind games, that's for sure. <laughs> as, as I'm sure a lot of his his uh, players would attest to. But uh, you know, I think his you know his track record uh, speaks for itself. And and obviously being a hockey hall of famer and and uh, you know and now going into the the Blues uh, Ring of you know Hall of Fame and um, you know it, it it just speaks to uh, how long his career has been and, and how successful his career has been. And you look at the organizations from Montreal, the Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Detroit, uh, you know, Chicago, uh, you know, it's a pretty storied, uh, pretty storied uh, career. We're talking with Chris Pronger, Hockey Hall of Famer, former Blues defenseman. He's going to be one of the many members of the inaugural Blues Hall of Fame class. Cool thing that the Blues are doing this weekend. Uh, ceremony on ice uh, tomorrow for the St. Louis Blues. Uh, Prongs, I am curious. When you guys all get together and you're in a c- scenario like this where uh, you'll be able to watch the modern game all in one room together with a whole lot of old school hockey players, what are the conversations like as you're watching the game and what it looks like today compared to the game that you guys all played together? <laughs> oh, you can only imagine. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, it's night and day from, you know, much like, you know, and it's funny, you know, every generation or every era, you know, probably, you know, says the same thing. I'm sure the 50s said that about the 60s, the 60s said it about the 70s, the 70s about the 80s, on, on, on. The game evolves, the game, you know, changes, it adapts to kinds of different scenarios and situations. So, you know, it's it's incredibly fast. These kids are highly skilled. Uh, I don't know if the the hockey sense is the same, but certainly from a skill, uh, you know, up and down the roster, you know, throughout these lineups, it, it's incredible. Uh, you know their skating ability, their their stick handling, shooting. I mean, these guys have coaches for every facet of the game. They got a shooting coach, a stick handling coach, a skating coach, a nutritionist, a strength training coach. They got. I mean, it, 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 it's uh, there's no shortage of coaches these days. <laughs> that's for sure. But uh, you know, it, it's nonetheless highly skilled, highly talented, and uh, you know, it's. Uh, it's impressive to see uh, see them do things at such a high speed, um, and and some of the things that they can do out there is remarkable. Prongs, if you were coming up today, like let's say uh, you, you got drafted three years ago instead of uh, in 1993, and you are now going to be a, a St. Louis Blue, what does Chris Pronger's game look like today? compared to the Chris Pronger that we saw when you actually played? How much different do you think your game would have been if you were coming up in today's NHL? Uh, well, I play the game. I play the game. It might, <laughs> it might be changed down a little bit, but I don't foresee, you know, you are who you are. You play the game the way you play the game. Uh, there are still gray areas in the book. There's still uh, ways to play the game in a physical manner. Uh, it just changes a little bit but it, but, it, but all that is still potentially there and around these you know just these kids don't play the game that way they don't they don't look for big hits they don't um you know they don't really play with the type of physicality that that we did back in my time um you know and, and some of that is a byproduct of 
times we live in and, and all the things that a lot of us had to go through uh, during my time and, and, and the era before. So, um, you know, certainly we're, uh, you know, as, as I said, as you look at each era and as you look how the games change and evolve, et cetera, um, you know, with some of the health problems that some players have had uh, over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, uh, you know, I think a lot of the rules that were put into place were to try to mitigate that. And, and we'll see how this net, next batch of players coming out, uh, how they manage. And, and then, uh, you know, you adjust from there. Prongs, you, you keep an eye close to the game. I know you still stay on top of it despite not playing anymore. But, you know, when it comes to the offense this season, I mean, everybody has written a story so far this year talking about how offense is at an all-time high and people are questioning it. Can you pinpoint a reason why it feels like that offense seems to just continue to rise in the National Hockey League? I'm sorry, say that again? Can you pinpoint why you feel like offense just continues to rise in the NHL? Uh, yeah, I think you're, you see, yes, you, you, teams you know play defense, but I think you're seeing a bigger group of players within a team have the ability to score goals. Um, again, as I just discussed, there are more highly skilled players, more players looking to get on the offense, more players <laughs> that don't care about turning the puck over. <laughs> you know, there's, there's more and more things that, you know, and, and, and consequently on the other side of it, players looking to go the other way, wanting to get on the offense, wanting to get on the attack. And taking more risks, and from that, um, you you see more goals. You know that's just a byproduct. Having said that, as we get closer to the playoffs, we all know what's going to happen. <laughs> Things are going to tighten up. Teams are going to all right. We got to prepare for the playoffs. We need to tighten up our loosey goosey defensive play. And and you know as you start getting into March and, and April, things really start to kind of seal up, if you will, and, and meld together and. and the defense then uh, gets in conjunction with the, the offense, and teams start to really, you know, get the chemistry going and, and get their attacks going, and um, they're able to kind of really hone in on how they want to play in the playoffs. Prongs, do you ever sit back and say to yourself, "Man, I, I would have put up a hundred point season <laughs> with the way that things are going right now." I mean, I, I'm looking back in 2000. You led NHL defensemen with points with 62 that year. Next best was almost seven, almost 10 points behind you. This year, there's like 10 defensemen that are on pace for a point per game uh, this season. Do, do you ever wonder, like, man, what what would my points have looked like in this game where it's so wide open? Well, I think you also look at. A lot, there's a lot of games that are going to to overtime in three on sure. three, and you know that provides a great opportunity for offense. Obviously, most teams when you watch them, they play puck possession and some play run and gun in three on three, and they they are highly skilled and talented. They're like, oh, our talent's going to be your talent, and they're they're going they're going for it, and and from that you get a lot of offensive opportunities. So, um, you know that that plays a role. I think the way Teams try to score goals, plays a role. You know, I think you got a five-man attack. The defense is more involved. Uh, they really try to incorporate the defense more into the scoring uh, process. So there's a number of factors, but, but like everything else, that's one here. Paul Coffey had 47 goals, <laughs> like, and he had 130 points or whatever it was. So it hasn't, you know, as the arrows kind of roll over and rules change or get modified or whatever. Or they call them tighter or less tight. 
um, you know, it opens up opportunities or decreases opportunities. So it's, it's cyclical like anything else. And right now we're in a, a, an era, well, maybe not an era, but a, a time where there's a lot more scoring, which is great. You know, I think players want to play in that and they want to get, you know, I, I, when I, there was a part when I was playing, there were no 100 point scores. <laughs> Nobody in the league could even get 100 points. I think the I think maybe JB Benner somebody scored 92 or 97 and led the league in scoring. So, you know, when you have that, no, nobody wants to see that. You want to see, you know, team, fans want to see scoring, players want to score. Um, and and when you're getting one nothing, two one games all the time, it it uh, uh, it can it can get you when you're getting paid to score goals, you're getting paid to put up produce points and. You know, the, the leading scorer in the league getting 90 points, it's, uh, you know, something has to change. Prong's final one from me, and since we're kind of on that topic and I want to go back to where we started also, talking about this Hall of Fame ceremony that's going to be taking place and kind of reminiscing about the Blues' history, throughout your tenure you played on some really incredible teams, but is there one team that sticks out to you that you feel like was the best? Uh, well, the year we won the President's Trophy, just from – you know, how our, our team evolved. You know, I played with the third line most of that year, and we were with Craig Conroy, Scott Peller, and Blair Actually, We were dominant. We played most of the time on the other team then. We weren't really checking from a, a defensive standpoint. We were checking from a let's let's play offense and, and force them out of their comfort zone and force them to defend and, and do things that they don't necessarily want to do. He's Chris Pronger, Hockey Hall of Famer, former Blues defenseman, and and one of the members of the inaugural Blues Hall of Fame class. You'll see the ceremony tonight to induct that class officially. Prongs, we appreciate the time, man. Congratulations on yet another honor here in St. Louis. We're looking forward to seeing the ceremony, and we can't wait to talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. That's Chris. That's Chris Pronger former Blues defenseman, Hockey Hall of Famer, and now a member of the Blues Hall of Fame. That class includes Glenn Hall, Red Berenson, Scotty Bowman, and Gary Unger. Those are the four that have been inducted in addition to the people that are already automatically inducted based on uh, their names going up into the rafters, Alex. So it'll be a cool scene tomorrow out at the enterprise yeah i can't wait to it they got uh so they're they're honoring them tonight obviously at the mac but then tomorrow they're going to have those guys at the the arena for practices and i'm looking forward to hopefully getting a chance to catch up with a couple more of those guys for uh pre-game and intermissions tomorrow night but uh it's great to hear chris pronger tell the stories of course and uh looking forward to this and this being an ongoing thing where every year we kind of see a couple more players inducted in and just continue to grow this class of uh huge history and heritage of the st louis blues here's a random question for you okay if you could take any of those players from their prime and plop them onto this Blues team, who are you going with? Any players? Like any of them? Any players oh, that are God. being inducted? Can into I take the, the coach, Scotty Bowman? Because I mean, if you want to, but I already I kind of like the coach that we got. Not saying that Scotty Bowman wouldn't be a good coach for the Blues. I'm just saying, like um, the the replacement damn. value for That's that, tough. I think is is a little lower than some of the other guys. Um, <sighs> but what what would you go with? Because I. Cause I I think, I think it has to be Chris. To be made, that is Chris Pronger. It, it, well, it has to be Chris Pronger, especially when you talk about the lack of defense right now, coverage. Um, I loved what he said there when we asked him about how he would play in today's game. He's like, there's still gray areas. People just don't want to play that way. But there are still gray areas where you can still be physical. Yeah. Uh, Chris Pronger, 
averaged like 32 minutes a night that President's Trophy season. And you just heard him mention he played a lot of that season with that third line of Craig Conroy and Scott Pellerin. So as much as I would love to have a Brett Hall or a Bernie Federko or a Brian Sutter or a slap shot from Al McKennis, I think I got to take Chris Pronger in the 31 minutes and the physical play that changes your defense. The other thing, man, like you look at what he did, even on the power play. Oh, yeah. He, he was a guy that could help you out on that unit as well. Like put him in the spot where I, I'm not talking any bleep about Colton Pareko, but and I'm not comparing the two. Well, that's you just prefaced it where you are. If you replaced Pareko with Chris Pronger, I feel like this team's in a pretty good spot. Here, here's the thing. <laughs> like, here's the thing I know people understand. Like Al McKennis and Chris Pronger averaged around 31 minutes a night. For a couple but Kenneth is the other guy that I think oh, yeah. you could go with, and it, you feel pretty good about that as well. Do people understand that like 60 minutes is played of hockey, and they were averaging 31 minutes a night? Let me check this Do out. that math for me real quick. 60 minutes, they played 31. That checks out to be uh, roughly carry the two to five. Yeah. Half. Half the game. Half of a freaking hockey game averaging for an 82-game schedule. Yeah, yeah good. I'll take one of those two guys on my roster. Pretty or cool. if I could be selfish, I'll take both. I mean, yes, that that sounds quite nice to me. Uh, another one that I would throw into the mix is like, you know, uh, Glenn Hall was pretty good. Glenn Hall was freaking good. <laughs> so, I, I was talking with Klaibs about this a couple of days ago. Glenn Hall's number should be retired, and I'm surprised it's not. Um, but, yeah, Glenn Hall was freaking awesome, and he did all of that with all of his numbers without wearing a mask. God, can you imagine? So. He tells the story. I'm assuming it's just because it was a, a brief time here in St. Louis, right? That's that's yeah, the case but, against. His... Yeah, because I think he, he was, it was the expansion draft, and it was only three seasons, I believe. Yes. But every year, four years, but he played three full seasons. And and those three seasons that he played the full seasons, they made it to the Stanley Cup final. Pretty good. Yeah, pretty damn good. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, how much is the cap going to impact the Blues' ability to trade Ryan O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko at the trade deadline? One national analyst think it's, thinks it could be a hurdle for teams to be able to clear. I don't think so. We'll talk about that coming up in about 15 minutes. Ask us anything, though, sports or otherwise, coming up next, 314-399-9646. If you guys have any questions, go ahead and get them in now on the Air Comfort Service tax line, 314-399-9646 on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe? Text 314-399-9646. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. And I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We'll get to your guys' questions here in just a moment. Ask us anything. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Uh, we'll bring the conversation we were having off air onto the air. Uh, we were talking about the points and how it's changed in the NHL today with Chris Pronger a moment ago. If you missed any of our conversation with him, check it out on the podcast page. And I went to look up what Connor McDavid has done so far this year, Alex, when it comes to his points. It's absurd. He's on pace for 150 points. And you, I asked you, like, historically speaking, what is this going to mean? And you said, you know, it's it's not crazy to think that he gets into the conversation with, with Wayne Gretzky points-wise. Man, I 
What we've seen from Connor McDavid is absurd. He has led the league in points in five of the last seven years. He is clearly the best points producer in the NHL in this modern era of the sport. And what has, what that has amounted to is essentially a 1.5 points per game pace. In 530 career games, he has 776 points. Now let's go over to Wayne Gretzky's points. He had a 20-year NHL career. He played basically 1,500 games. He had 2,900 points. Yep. He was on a two points per game pace. I know what Connor McDavid is doing is unbelievable, but you would have to like nearly double this pace for the rest of his NHL career for him to be able to catch Wayne Gretzky. Well, and also consider the era that Wayne Gretzky played in with guys like Bob Probert and Tony Twist and Kelly, like those guys on the ice. Here, I, it's just so dumb. It is. I think, though, by the end of Connor McDavid's career, albeit with health on his side and, and if he still stays on a competitive team, I think he would he will end the NHL number two in all-time points. I, I think he is within reach of Wayne Gretzky because 2,000 would put him above Yarmir Yager, and he'd be 857 points still behind Wayne Gretzky. was just freaking absurd. But yeah, he's, if, he's, if, he, he's, he's not catching. If Gretzky. health stays on, on, on the side of Connor McDavid, I think you'll be talking about the two greatest players in NHL history, Wayne Gretzky and Connor McDavid. At least points producing wise. Point producing wise, yeah. I mean, cups are a different story because I'd have Sidney Crosby up there with what he's done. I mean, you. We're, we're talking about how incredible it is that he's on pace for 150 points this year. Mm-hmm. Talking about McDavid in 1986, Wayne Gretzky had 160 assists, like zero goals that year. Would have finished with more points in that season yep. than Connor McDavid is on pace for it's in absurd. 2023. It's just, it's so insane. He what, is what the only goat. He is the only goat. All right, uh, let's get to ask us anything. Guys, with BK's new specs, does he have to order a soy petite latte? So I was thinking about So I was thinking about this a lot last night, man, and I got a couple of follow-up questions if that's okay. Are you You're gonna ask him either way? Are you able to order a happy meal? Like are you able to go to a restaurant with Kara and order the kids' meal and nobody question? Do you shop for clothes at Oshkosh Bagash? More of a children's place guy. Gap kids. Mm -hmm. Understandable. Um, Can you get one airplane ticket and you be the lap children on the plane? I'm free at Disney World. (laughs) Are you? (laughs) Well, I don't think a petite head means you're less than two years old, but that's fine. Can you fit into baby doll clothes? Like, these are all questions. Do you have to wear floaties when you get into the pool? Well, that one's a yes, but it has nothing to do with my age or my. <laughs> yeah, are, like, do you have to have, do you have to ride in a car seat when you get in your car? These are all questions I have about. I your still petite. use a booster chair when but, I go up to uh, when I go to Kara's in-laws for Sunday dinner. I use the booster seat. Like you had a hair appointment yesterday. Do you get well, to ride in the fire truck or the helicopter when you go to get your haircut? They give me a, a sucker afterwards. Do so. they? <laughs> Does the doctor give you a cookie and a band-aid after a shot? It's mm-hmm. yeah. incredible, man. It's great. You and your petite head. Although I gotta go get a, uh, I gotta go get. A helmet fixture for my kid on Monday. So, congrats was, on your petite head. Mine's got mine's got a misshapen big head. So I'll probably fit in your daughter's helmet. My dad. My dad's curious if you buy granimals. Only twice a week. <laughs> Can you fit a Burger King crown on your head? 
No, it's too big. <laughs> <laughs> Your head or the crown? The crown. <laughs> the crown. Come that on. makes sense. All right. Uh, from the 314, this one is for BK. Why does KC hate St. Louis so much? I have many Kansas City friends, and they all say the same thing. KC hates St. Louis. I remember seeing a fan map of Canada and the United States during the 2019 Stanley Cup final, and all of Canada was for the Blues, and all of the U.S. was for the Blues, except for the state of Massachusetts and except for the city of Kansas City, despite the fact that Brady and the Patriots were the Chiefs' biggest rival at the time. Please explain this phenomenon to me. I I've always said it like this. Kansas City views St. Louis the way St. Louis views Chicago the way that Chicago views New York. It's the little brother complex. Like, for whatever reason, that's what it is. Um, it's a rivalry between the two cities. I think they're more similar than they are dissimilar, honestly. Um, I think that both could learn a thing or two from the other. Barbecue is a big thing that is a rivalry between the two places. I've always said, I think St. Louis has outstanding barbecue. The difference is there is more of those places in KC than there are in St. Louis. Not that St. Louis has bad barbecue. It's excellent. Most of the places out here are awesome. Um, there's not as many of them. There's not, not as many uh, small, like, hole-in-the-wall spots that you can just, like, throw a, a rock and you find seven of them on a corner. Um, so that's the biggest difference. But I, it's just a rivalry for whatever reason. I, I think they're more similar, though, than they are different. Uh, from the 314, guys, I have a daughter that's in her junior year of college as a journalism major with an emphasis in sports journalism. She will have some time to do an internship, and is there any advice that you guys can pass along to her that I could, could impart upon her as she takes that internship. I'll say the biggest thing for me, try to make as many connections as you can while you're in that internship. Because once you get into the business, I know that everybody says the old cliche, it's more about who you know than what you know. It is so unbelievably true in this business, man. If you know the right people, you can work your way up. And I, I say this unfortunately, but it's true. Even if you're not good at the job. Um, eventually, you got to become good at the job because you can only fake it till you make it so long. But yeah, if she's able to f meet the right people and work her way in with those people and show them that she's good at her job, that's going to be one of the biggest things that she can do. I would also say ask to do more. Don't just do the bare minimum at your internship. Sure. Ask to be involved with other aspects of the career. Don't just be a one-trick pony where you say, I'm going into writing or I'm going into broadcasting. Ask to be involved with everything. Learn about the marketing side. Learn about the sales side. Learn about the programming side. Learn about the journalism side. Because the more verse you are in doing other things, the more likely you are to get hired. Because people now, they want individuals who can do three or four different roles rather than just one different role. Um, plus, you want to show your excitement and anticipation and anxiousness about being involved rather than just them saying, hey, we need you to do this and just doing it. Try and get as uh, involved as possible with uh, the internship that you're doing. Final thing here, somebody from the 573, does BK have a race car bet? No, it's a Corvette. If you had a little bit more taste, you'd have a Ferrari bet. You'd put an O at the end of it. And you'd call it a Ferrari -o bet. Yeah, because that's what he wants is to go sleep on a Ferrari. Yeah, right. Coming up in 15 <laughs> minutes, <laughs> time for the junk drawer. But next, how much is the flat cap going to impact the Blues' ability to trade guys like Vladimir Tarasenko or Ryan O'Reilly at the deadline? Emily Kaplan seems to think it could be a hindrance for them. We're not sure it will be. We'll talk about it coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we'll get into the junk drawer. But Alex, I was reading earlier today over on ESPN.com, and they had a piece with their second half of the NHL season predictions. And Emily Kaplan put one out there where she said she thinks it's going to be tougher for some of the teams to make trades at the deadline than expected. She wrote this. The names seemingly available for the trade deadline are flashy. It includes Eric Carlson, Jonathan Taves, Vladimir Tarasenko, Ryan O'Reilly, just to name a few. But too many teams are strapped up against the cap to make maneuvers. Plus, parity is so intense in the NHL right now that very few teams feel confident to say that this is definitely going to be their year. Many clubs instead are looking to add, uh, excuse me, many clubs looking to add have depleted their draft capital in recent seasons and their prospect systems aren't great either. Those who do have their first-round picks want to hold on to them because this is such a deep and talented 2023 draft class. Uh, Vancouver captain Bo Horvat also seems to be likely on the move. The fate of everyone else is a lot less clear. Alex, my initial reaction to this was, oh, come on. She's overstating this. The NHL last year, we saw it. Everybody was complaining about their lack of cap space, and then we saw some big-time moves at the deadline. And then I went over to capfriendly.com to look at what the cap space is for these teams that are currently in contention. Looked up the teams that all have at least 50 points so far on the season. The only teams on that list that have at least $2 million in cap space before going into LTIR are the Rangers, the Winnipeg Jets, the Kings, and the Kraken. It's the end of the list. Now, there are some of these teams that might play the game that you were talking about yesterday where they will go into LTIR. They've got no issue with it. They'll keep those guys like the Avs could do this with Landeskog, for example. Those, they'll keep those guys on LTIR throughout the regular season, bring them back for the playoffs, and then you don't have to worry about it. You've circumvented the cap that way. Does this change at all your impression on how difficult it's going to be specifically for the Blues to be able to trade the likes of Vladimir Tarasenko or Ryan O'Reilly. I mean, it has to change it a little bit because there's not as many uh, takers that are out there. But the the thing about it is, last season I felt it was the same. And I, I don't know how to go back and look at what their cap I've space tried. was it's at the tough. time. Yeah, I felt like it was the same. And if you go back and look at the trades that took place, I mean, Colorado took on Arturi Lekkonen and Josh Manson's contract, 50% retained on Josh Manson. Boston took on Hampus Lindholm at a time that they were already cap crunched. Uh, Florida took on Claude Giroux and Ben Girat. Tampa took on Nick Paul and Brandon Hagel. Like, there were a lot of contracts flying around last season where 50% was retained, and it didn't seem like there were massive contracts going out the other end. The way I look at this is, yeah, it's probably going to be very difficult to get a trade done if you look at it right now. Things might change between now and March 3rd if LTIR pops up or if injuries start to take place, but desperate teams find a way to get it done. And that's where I feel like it comes down to, like it or not, if the cap is flat and things are tight, a team is going to find a way to make a move to get a player that they desire. If you're the Rangers and you do have some cap space, but it's going to be tight, but you need a right winger, you'll find a way to make it work in terms of trading somebody out or involving a third team. It's not going to be easy. I I, I picture this trade deadline to go down to the wire in terms of a lot of teams finalizing deals, or you're going to see some deals go down before March 3rd because they know how hard it's going to be to get involved with other teams but in terms of the Blues, I think if they continue this pace where it's up and down and teams need a center or a scoring winger, 
I think they'll find a way to make it work in terms of retaining salary at 50%. You know what's going to be one of the most valuable commodities at the deadline for um, contenders? Expiring deals. The reason why I say that is it's the same conversation we had last year when the Blues were at the deadline and it was like, okay, you could go out there and make a big move, but you're going to have to be money in, money out. So when they traded for Nick Letty, what they have to do? They had to send Oscar Sundquist in return. That's why I come back to the conversation that we've had a million different times this year with Yessi Pugliarvi. Yessi Pugliarvi is on a $3 million contract right now. Alex, if you just, like, it'll be simple math. Let's say that the uh, Edmonton Oilers decide, you know what we could really use is another centerman. We would like to have Ryan O'Reilly. Just as a hypothetical, just throwing this out there as as one of the many different uh, teams that could do this. Oilers say, you know what, we want Ryan O'Reilly. To make this work money-wise, what we're going to have to do is we've got to have the Blues retain 50% of that salary, right? So at that point in time, instead of being a $7.5 million deal for O'Reilly, he's at like four because it's less than half of the season. It's prorated salaries just to make the math a little bit easier. Yes, he pull Yarvey at that point in time will be at roughly one and a half, one million million in terms of the salary that's remaining on his deal, right? And then if you also have the Blues retain 50% of that salary, you now have... Ryan O'Reilly costing the Oilers $2 million. Well, if they send $1.5 million back, which is what Yessi Pugliarvi will be at that point in time, they can make that work from a cap perspective. I think that's going to be the type of thing that you have to see from the Blues. They're going to have to be the team that takes back this year's Oscar Sundquist from another team, where the team that you're sending him to, maybe that player has value, but for whatever reason right now it's not working in the situation that they're in. The reason why this could end up being a good thing for the Blues is is that just like Sonny for Detroit, maybe you get an under-the-radar intriguing player. Yes, Epoliarvi could be one of those. There are many others littered across the league that, for whatever reason, it's just not working in their current situation. You've brought this up with Alexi Lafreniere. There's others that could fit into that category. So I'll be curious to see who it is that Doug Armstrong identifies that could be that player that is a salary filler but maybe they become more than that here in St. Louis. Yeah, I think that's a great way to go about this, and I think you'll see a lot of teams do this. I mean, Puyarvi is one of them. You just go around the National Hockey League. Teams that are going to be aggressive, and you look at teams that are in the in the market for what the Blues have to sell. Uh, Barbashev, I think, is going to be even more intriguing because of the circumstance, because he's not going to cost you much, and you can still eat 50% of his contract. But... For O'Reilly's sake, because Vladdy's going to be the difficult one because of the no-trade clause, and you got to find the team that wants him and the team that he wants to go to and how you make that work money-wise. He'll be the tough one. But O'Reilly, if they decide to go down that path, uh, you'll be at a position to where you can say, like, we're willing to eat 50% of this contract like you just mentioned, but we're also in the market for something that helps us now too. And a team like the Edmonton Oilers that feels like, well, we're getting a top-six player for a guy who is a top-nine player – that helps our team. Maybe the Toronto Maple Leafs come calling and they got to shed some salary elsewhere. You might be able to strike gold with a player that needs a change of scenery that you can look at and say, we're going to re-up you now. I mean, you could do something like Buchnevich where you acquire the player and give him a contract extension. The tough part is Buchnevich, that kind of a deal, probably is only possible in the offseason. It's going to have to be something more like the, the sunny thing where he is a distressed asset that once was a super valuable piece here in St. Louis, but maybe Maybe. it's an injury. Maybe it's an injury for a guy that's not on LTIR. He's trying to battle through it, but it's just not working in their current scenario. Where that guy, the Harrison Bader situation for the Cardinals, honestly, is maybe the best example of this. Harrison Bader's a good player, 
but the Cardinals needed to win down the stretch. And so they viewed Jordan Montgomery as being a better asset for them down the stretch last year and then going into 2023 than Harrison Bader would be. And so that's the kind of thing that I will be curious to see what the Blues are looking for. Do they just say, you know what, we'll take whatever and we'll just get the money off of the books after this season and then we'll use that as the asset, the the money. That becomes what is valuable about removing O'Reilly out of the scenario and maybe it's first round pick instead of getting that player. Or do they say, you know what, for a guy like O'Reilly or Tarasenko, maybe we'll take a second round pick. But this is a player that we really like, and we're getting our offseason started a little bit early. He's got one more year of cost control, or he's an RFA, and we'll be able to continue to keep him here on a bridge deal afterwards, like Pugliarvi. That's where it could get interesting for them. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is you can involve a third team. It gets a little trickier, but that team can eat 25%. Well, and the thing that Kaplan pointed out in her article, too, is Teams don't want to trade away 2023 picks because it's such a deep draft. A second-round pick might be as good as a first-round pick for how deep this draft is, and I don't know if teams are going to be willing to take on a 2024 draft pick unless it's just kind of on top of the 2023. So this is going to be an intriguing trade deadline because there's so much parity right now. Everyone feels like they're in it. Give it a month, though. Teams start to dip out a little bit more. Like I think Vancouver at one time a couple of weeks ago felt like they were in it. Now Vancouver's in probably full sell tank mode. So teams start to dip out of it, and when they do, that makes other teams more competitive for commodities because they want to improve and be the best in a short team or short list of teams that feel like they're competitive. Uh, final thing here, we'll just answer this one question real quick. The Air Comfort Service text line, 314-399-9646. Guys, can the Blues retain money if they're just getting picks in return? Uh, the Blues can retain up to 50% of the salary that remains. So when it comes to the cap situation for these other teams, like I mentioned, o- O'Reilly, Tarasenko, they're both at $7.5 million in terms of their cap hit this year. Uh, by going to the trade deadline and waiting that long, these salaries are prorated by the end of the year. So the team that ends up getting those players, it'll be right around $4 million that they would have to take on. And then if the salary was retained 50% by the blues, you could get that down to $2 million for each of those respective players. It's not a ton of money, but when you look around at how little cap space there is available around the rest of the league, that's where you might end up having to take on another player of, maybe $3 million in terms of the AAV. So if you're like going over to cap friendly and you're looking for players that could be of interest to you, uh, look for like $3 million right around there as being the type of player that the blues could maybe take on to be able to make this work coming up in about 10 minutes or so. Ryan Helsley is one of the Cardinals most important players in 2023 and MLB network rated him as one of the best relievers in 2023. Is he enough? Or do they need to go out and add more to this bullpen? Still talk about that coming up in 10 minutes. The junk drawer is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in, carry out, seven days a week. and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's time to dive into the junk drawer. We'll talk Ryan Helsley and the Cardinals bullpen in about 10 minutes or so. But Tanner has a junk drawer story for us today. T-Bone, what you got, man? So I just discovered this about 30 minutes ago, and it might be my favorite contest at a fair that I've ever seen. Uh, In Iowa, they have a husband calling contest. 
Uh, and I'm just curious. You know, you guys are married. And do your guys' wives do anything like this when they're calling you? Bob! 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 Hurry up! I don't want to be late! Yeah, that actually sounds like my gra grandma. Okay, what about this one? Can you hear me? You get yourself in here right now! No, that's my mother. Yeah. Yeah, that, I that, mean, that's, that's not my mother. But... My, my wife doesn't sound like that. No, my, yeah. my mother does. My, my wife would never talk to me like that because I would never speak to her like that. And this is the one This is the one that won first place in this contest. You know you're going to be late again, and you Why know that I want to get there on time. Yeah, Tanner, is this... Tanner, is this audio? Tanner, is this audio from your trip to Texas last year? No, that one was a lot more. Uh, that also sounded like yelling. A, that also sounded like a pig call. Hey, what are we doing? That was that Woo Pig Suey. What are <laughs> we doing over here? No, but I I thought we should submit our own entry, and it's kind of a mix of these and something that we've had in the past. And uh, this is this is the one that I'd like to submit my, personally. Brandon, Brandon, Brandon. Hurry up! I don't want to be late. I think we send that one into the fair in Iowa. Brandon, can you, Brandon, can you add, Brandon. Hurry up! I don't want to be late! Can you add something in there where, like, get your little head going? <laughs> something like, uh, you got a tiny head. How long does it take to take a shower? Doesn't take that long to gel your hair on that tiny head. Brandon, Brandon, Brandon. I have uh, an addition that I would like to throw in here. Okay. I think we retire that quote. Brandon? Brandon. No way. I think me? it's officially time to retire that. It's quote. impossible to retire. I, you're that. Right. Look, we, we should we retire can... it, but I am going to talk to Ollie Marmol one day when we're at the down at no, the dugout, and I'm going to ask him to get a Brandon. I, will, I want an updated one. I want Ollie going, Brandon. We're or not going to retire one. that. You can a retire Gloria all you want. We're not getting rid of Brandon. So here's the thing I essentially asked in that scenario why he did his job. Oh. Touche. <laughs> Touche. Why he didn't have more urgency by using a better pitcher in that scenario. Now, listen. Oh, this um, is why you want to retire, because you think you were correct. No, I wasn't. I was in the wrong on, on certain portions of this. No doubt about it. I fully admit that readily. You know what I enjoy about that? When he asked, what would you have done? And you answered. Well, I was going to talk about it the next day on the radio. Like, I can't be a fraud in that spot. Because what would you have done? Well, I would have gone to this guy. And he interrupted him immediately. He goes, well, I don't really care what you were. That's not your job, Brandon. I said, you're, I said, you're right. Like, it's not my job. God, that but was I, the most uncomfortable Zoom call I have ever been on. It was a terrible situation. The whole, like, the Zoom era in general put everybody in a bad spot. And it, it put Schilt in a bad spot in that, in that situation. But what I was really asking about, you guys remember, like that was when the Cardinals were essentially in the spot that the, the Blues are in right now, where they needed wins in a bad, bad way. And I think it was like a, a nine to one game that they lost in that spot. Ironically enough, I think it was uh, Luis Garcia that ended up blowing it in that opportunity. And he ended up becoming like their best reliever down the stretch. But I, I asked him why he didn't go with one of their better arms when it started getting close. And he he didn't like it. It's that not your job. Sorry. Um, so, but if I'm not mistaken, those are two separate zooms. The, it's not your job was different than the Brandon. No. No, because, yeah. no, because the Brandon, I thought he ended it after another zoom. That's right. Where he yeah, said, yeah, any yeah. other questions, Brandon? I think he was talking about Brendan Schaefer. No, that's Brendan. 
play the audio again. I don't, I don't know that he knows the difference. Say I, it. I, I think he thought we were the same person. Play it, T-Bone. Brandon. That's Brandon all the way. That is Brandon all the way. I don't know what the hell we started this segment with from the, the wife calling or husband calling stuff because I swear that was audio live from Tanner's station wagon in Texas. Hurry up! I don't want to be late. All right, Mima, fine. We're going to get to San Antonio on time, I promise. <laughs> Mima, I know, I know, the meatloaf is something you want to get to. Mima, it's a two-lane highway in Texas, and we're only going to get to Austin this way, driving this miles an hour. We'll get there. Brandon. Oh. I like how we try to retire Brandon. That's not going to happen. I, I, I want an updated one. I want it from Ollie. I want it from Gersh. I want it from Mo. Let's I want it from Craig everybody. Ruby to do it. Oh, so, the Ruby one would be great. Somebody asked, do I have any follow-up questions for Keith Hernandez? That one I don't regret. That one I don't regret. I, I want to say that up front. I do not regret that line of questioning. The next day in the paper, in the paper, Alex, Rick Hummel's lead for the story in which Keith Hernandez was coming back to St. Louis, he said Keith Hernandez responds to his past, basically. What, what would you say is the worst BK moment in St. Louis history so far? Brandon. That one was the one that I feel the worst about. I don't know why you feel bad about that, though. Because it was a bad spot for both of us. Both of us were put into a, a, a tough situation where he wanted to get up. He was ready to leave. I asked. He, they see my hand late, and it, it just ended up going off the rails from there. It bad situation for. I don't know everybody if I would involved. feel bad about that. that I mean, you were doing your job. I, I know, but that that's the one that I feel the worst about. Um, that's probably it that's in it? terms of the, the worst moments, though. Oh, no, I think that's it. All right, that's now I got to know what O was. Not getting was Ryan, Not getting Ryan Braun on the air. That, no, that, that was that was a bad that was, one. That ended up being funny, but that was a tough yeah, one. Yeah, we actually were trending for like a day, I think. Um, what was the O, man? I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, when I was doing the show with with Jamie, and oh, is this when you missed the show from your yoga class the night no, before, no, that that was a bad one too. <laughs> I remember <laughs> that. That one didn't. It was like one of that was me. one of the first weeks there. Um, when I when. Jamie said something about Jimmy Roberts. Oh, yeah. And you said we should get him on. And on I the said we, we should get him on. Oh, sometime. God. I remember said, I was running. Well, the, that's going to be tough. I was on the board at that time, and Jamie and made eye contact with me, and then we both looked at you like, yikes. That that was a bad one. That, that was one of my worst well, ones. You didn't ask Chris Pronger about, about him. Um, no, I, I also didn't ask Darren All, Oliver about his dad the way that Jamie did. That was a, that was a <laughs> tough moment for the show. You've had, you've had a lot of St. Louis moments, man. That was a tough one. You've had a lot of St. Louis moments. Somebody on the text line asked, hey, guys, what was the Keith Hernandez thing? Uh, I'll go ahead and just uh, do this real quick. So when I was doing the show with Danny Mac, we had Keith Hernandez on. It, first of all, it was an awesome get. And Keith Hernandez is one of my favorite baseball analysts in the country, and he's he's a Hall of Famer. He should be a Hall of Famer. He's one of the best defensive first basemen in the history of the sport. And if you look at his numbers, everything about his career suggests that he should have been a Hall of Famer. Um, you know the history of how things ended with Keith here in St. Louis. If you don't, go read about it. Um, we don't need to spend time on that. But I asked him, knowing what you know now, when you look back on your career and how things ended here in St. Louis, how do you now look at that time in your career um, and what you learned there afterwards? I, I think it's a fair question. Um, there, he, he's written about it in a book. Um, he was then asked about it the next day by Rick Hummel. Like it, it it's one of the biggest storylines of Keith Hernandez's career because it's kind of one of those sliding door moments in the history of baseball, honestly, especially over the last 50 years. So I wanted to ask him about it. I thought it was a fair question. He 
th the way that he responded was he said, well, what kind of question is that? And I think that made everybody think, okay, he's he's furious. And the tone kind of made it sound no, that way as well. It. And then he answered it. And honestly, it was an excellent answer. And he said, it's one of the greatest career regrets that I have. It's one of my greatest life regrets. And I I thought that was a, a worthwhile question. Didn't end up going the way that I <laughs> someone that tweeted. Someone texted us the picture of you in your Snow White outfit and said, this is the worst PK moment. And honestly, I got to agree. <laughs> Oh, God, that's With haunting. With the red fuzzy cuffs on. That's yeah. haunting me again. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're talking to Chris Carver. Man, no, no way to really man, transition. You've had, a, you've had a rough couple of years, man. <laughs> Some would say successful. We're a great couple of years, Brandon. <laughs> Coming up next, one's got to go. You give us four options, we'll tell you which one's got to go here on 101 ESPN. Nope, nope. Take two. Coming up next, Ryan Helsley is one of the Cardinals' he's most important he's players. He's, he's frazzled. <laughs> we're talking to Ryan Helsley next. Brandon, Brandon, Brandon. I don't want to be late. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's PK and Ferrario on a Friday here on 101 ESPN. We are broadcasting live from the E&B Granite Studios out at the Centina Community Ice Center. Alex, the other day, MLB Network was going through their rankings of the top relievers in all of baseball for 2023. Here's what they had to say about Cardinals reliever Ryan Helsley. At number 10, it's Ryan Helsley of the St. Louis Cardinals. Helsley broke out big in his fourth year in St. Louis. He's going into his age 28 season and comes off a year with a sparkling 1.25 ERA. Helsley's opponent's OPS was third best in baseball last year. And you can see the drastic difference in that number in the same metric over the previous three years. In his first three seasons, his ERA was over four with a strikeout rate around 21%. Last year, K rate up over 39%, third best in all of baseball. So that was Brian Kinney on MLB Network introducing the number 10 overall reliever in Major League Baseball for 2023, according to their list, Ryan Helsley. Now, there is a little bit of news to pass along on this regard as well. The Cardinals have announced that they are still exchanging salary arbitration figures with Hennessy Cabrera and Ryan Helsley. All seven other arbitration eligible players have settled. This means that the Cardinals will or are expecting to go to arbitration with Helsley and Cabrera. Those are the only two guys that will do so. Uh, Derek Gould adding that the they're going to exchange salary figures today, likely head to an arbitration hearing, pending talks of a potential multi-year extension with Helsley if both parties are interested. So that's the latest on his contract situation. Alex, Ryan Helsley was outstanding last year. One of the best relievers in all of Major League Baseball. Finished with a 1.25 ERA. You don't get a whole lot better than that. We know what happened in the playoffs. Felt like a one-off to me. Wouldn't worry too much about that. What's your level of confidence, though, that Helsley's going to be able to follow that up with another, like, maybe not all-time great performance, but uh, one of the best closers in baseball type of performances this year? Uh, I'd probably put it at like a an 8 in terms of confidence level from 1 to 10 because he's got the stuff to, to maintain that performance. I mean, the velocity, the movement on his pitches, the confidence when he's on the mound, and he did that in the closing spot. It's not like last year he was a guy who was doing this in the seventh inning and then now he's being pushed into a closer position. So I would put the confidence pretty high that he can maintain that, um, barring any type of injury. But with that being said, I I don't know how confident I am in terms of a, an extension with him. Like, uh, when it comes to relievers – Man, I don't know if I want to be handing out two, three, four-year contract extensions. I think I want to go year to year because we know 
buy anything these guys break. Yeah, I agree with you there. I would I would not have confidence in giving him a multi-year contract extension. But in terms of him having a repeat performance, I'd go nine out of ten. I the only thing that could really derail him would just be health, and that's a, I mean that's a major factor for most pitchers. I mean, you, we know last year part of the issue was he was dealing with that jam finger that he suffered in the last game or the second to last game of the year in Pittsburgh, and then the year prior in which his numbers weren't or nowhere near close to that. And kind of why we kind of wrote him off as having a bounce back year going into 2022 was because his knee, his knee was messed mm-hmm. up. He had to have microscopic surgery I think in the offseason if I remember correctly to get it cleaned out and you saw when he's healthy to Alex's point he's got some of the most dominant stuff we've seen from a Cardinals bullpen pitcher in quite some time and it's swing and miss stuff Hicks' stuff is good but he doesn't get the swing and miss on it like you would expect so yeah I'm pretty confident 9 out of 10 I would say that Ryan Hells is going to be the same guy I I don't know if he can get better than a 1.25 ERA but I think he's going to be somewhere around there going into this year I think he's outstanding. Uh, there, you look at under the hood on some of the numbers from last year. Like sometimes you can have a pitcher that just goes on a heater and gets, I don't want to call it lucky, fortunate over the course of the season with a better than expected batting average on balls in play. That was not the case for Ryan Helsley. It, we talk a lot about the Cardinals' lack of swing and miss. Ryan Helsley's one of the best swing and miss pitchers in all of baseball, regardless of role. So I have a lot of confidence that he's going to be great once again in 2023. Long term, what does that look like? I don't know. The question that I have is not so much about Helsley. It's not so much about Gallegos. It's about what else is behind them. Who are you going to in the seventh inning this year consistently? Who are the guys that if you have, you know, they've gone back to back with Helsley or Gallegos, that third game, who are you going to in those late innings? And that's why I think as you look to the the open market, I look at some of the relievers that remain available to this day, and I say, yeah, man, that that might be the type of player that they should be looking at right now. The free agency market still has some really good relievers available, including Andrew Chafin, including Matt Moore, who we've talked about in the past. Most of them that are still available are left-handed pitchers. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think this team could use somebody uh, to be in that late innings mix that is a lefty. So I do still think that they need some depth, but their closer situation, I think, is solidified right now. That has not been the case at times in recent years. You've had Gallegos, but other than that, man, there have been some. there's been some fluidity going into individual seasons on who that player is going to be. Alex, there is one other piece of news that I wanted to discuss real quick with you guys. Is it Dakota Hudson, an ace signing for $2 million? Nope, did like that deal, though. That was a good thing that the Cardinals were able to get that done. Imagine having an ace at $2 million. It is the automatic balls and strike zone, which is reportedly coming to AAA next season. Every AAA um, baseball park will have the ABS system is what they call it. Now, they're going to be using two different systems, though. Half of them will go with a system where every ball strike call is made with the automatic ball strike system. So there will no no longer be an ump behind the plate that is making every call. It'll be based on that system. The other half will be utilizing a challenge system where it will still be what we typically experience on a on a night-to-night basis here in St. Louis. The catcher frames the ball. You have the ump make the call. The difference here is you will be able to challenge three times per game. Each team will get three challenges. And when they go to that, the way that it's worked in the past in the minors is that there will be the, the big screen, the jumbotron, and they'll just show it real quick right after you challenge it. you got to go within like 10 seconds or whatever. It's got to be a quick decision. They'll go to it immediately, and it'll say, was that a ball, was that a strike? And then you have to get back into the box. You're ready to go. If it's overturned, great. If not, no worries, no harm, no foul. You continue moving on. I love that version 
of the automatic ball strike zone. I, I think that's the way that it should be because if we're being totally honest about the way that this typically works, it's pretty rare that you see like 15 blown calls in a game. It's typically like three or four big ones that we hone in on. And if you're able to challenge those, I think it kind of eliminates that problem and you continue keeping some of the human element in the game. I like that version of the automatic ball strikes. I don't mind it. It sounds more meticulous than maybe it's going to be. I actually prefer the other one. Like, if you're going to do it, just make every call called by that system. The problem is what they have found is that some of these are not 100%. None of them are 100% accurate. And some of the the umpires are actually more accurate with their calls on a night-in, night-out basis than what the automatic ball strike zone is. So I, 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 I like the challenge system because it'll be quick. And now, if this is something that drags on and it's like, hey, we're waiting 30 seconds That's for what the I'm challenge worried about. and the guy steps out of the box, you challenge it. But we've got the pitch clock now. So that in and of itself is going to require this to happen quickly where you got to determine very quickly, is this going to be challenged or not? And then it shows up on the big board. We can all watch it from our seats. They're watching it. The umpires don't have to go to a monitor or anything. It's right there. It's ready to go. And they decide, is it a ball or a strike? Boom, we're ready to go. Got to get back into the box, and we're done. I, I think it could be good. And I, I don't think it's going to have that kind of what uh, what you said, Alex, that fear of it's going to kind of slow the game down because, it as as you said, it's kind of like what they use in tennis. In tennis, I mean, it's done within 10, 15 seconds. So like, it, it does not take them long. It takes them a second to calibrate the video. They show the video of the ball's path, and then they see it bounce, and then they can zoom in real quick, in or out. Okay, there's our call, and we go on. And it takes about 10 seconds. So I don't think it's going to be something that is going to really slow down the game like we see some instant replays do that. I, I, I agree with BK. I, I like this system of, you know, I want the human element still, so I don't want to completely eliminate basically the home plate umpire. I want them to still make the calls. And I, I like the idea of a challenge system because then there's also the strategy of it. Okay, do I really want to challenge a close call here in the second inning? Because I, I do get three, but if I'm wrong, I'm down to two. And how's that affect me going forward? So I like the idea of the challenge system, and players seem to like it too, based on everything that we've seen. You know, well, the Athletics reported, ESPN, and Buster Olney's reported. Players like it better with the challenge system, and and that's kind of the way I hope they go. I don't want it just to be fully, you know, it's the ABS system. We truly don't need a home plate umpire. He's just there to give us the signals. I want there to be some of that human element still. I think this is the the best median point where people like Tanner who still want that human element involved in the game, it's still there to a degree. And people that just want to get the calls right, the big calls that we sometimes get frustrated about where it's like, hey, that was the, the third out in the eighth inning with the Cardinals having two outs and you had the bases loaded and it was the wrong call, like clearly the wrong call. And it completely changed the game with the Cardinals down by one run with Albert po- last year, Albert Pujols at the plate or this year, Goldie Arenado at the plate. Now you could challenge that and maybe he ends up walking. You walk in a run there and instead of being a strike uh, inning over, it's a ball. Man goes to first. You score the game tying run. Now we continue playing. Those are the kinds of spots where I think this could make a massive difference. Again, it's not 100%, and that's the thing that gets a little bit tough here to be able to like be in full support of this ABS system. You'd like to see it closer to that, 
But um, if they are able to, I I think this is something that within the next couple of years we're going to see brought to the major league level. Yeah, I think people need to get ready because if it's at AAA full-time this season, I would say probably in the next year or two it's going to be up at major leagues full-time. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll talk to Chris Gerber, voice of the Blues. But next, one's got to go. You give us four options. We'll tell you which one's got to go. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service tax line here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. This is PK and Ferrario. Time now for One's Gotta Go. We offer up the talking points and you get to pick which one's gotta go on 101 ESPN. Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, joins us in a little bit more than five minutes. Right now, it's time for One's Gotta Go. You give us four options. We'll tell you which one's gotta go. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service. Text line, before we get to some of those, I do want to pass along this from Craig Berube, who says, Nick Letty went through practice today and could return this weekend against the Lightning. Quote, Tomorrow morning is going to be a big sign for him. Either way, Tyler Tucker is expected to remain in the lineup because of the energy that he brings. Quote, we'd like to keep him going. Alex, I'm assuming this means Steve Santini would be the one that comes out. Yeah, probably. I mean, he's been playing the least amount of minutes, and they'd probably shift Callie Rosen to be a right-handed defenseman to just play with Mikola. So, yeah, I would – or not Mikola, um, uh, Tyler Tucker. So, yeah, I would probably imagine that. One's got to go. Methods for Tanner Hendrickson to get a date. Uh, Tender, eHarmony, approaching somebody in public, or texting for ad- advice during the Ask Uncle Randy segment. You know, I, I've heard Randy give a lot of great advice from when I was producing his morning show and listening to it. That's the one that's got to go, though. You know, I, I'm not sure he's as effective as Tinder, eHarmony, or just bluntly approaching someone in public hard to say no when he asks someone in front of their face so i think this is i I think it's uncle randy's got to go here i think this is pretty simple it's you approaching somebody that's That's just because that's something you wouldn't do no it just seems something very uncomfortable for you no no i think it's my like what's your pickup line well what's your pickup line alex is definitely projecting yeah he is projecting here well god yeah i i dated my wife through facebook messenger for the first couple of years that checks out. I, I like Tanner. You just don't seem like the kind of guy that would walk up to somebody and have a smooth pickup line. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. Are you kidding me? And that's the line for the Sports Center updates. You can't use that. One's got to go. One got to go. Arcade game edition. Pinball. Mrs. Pac-Man. It's Ms. Pac-Man. She's not married to Mr. Area Pac-Man. 51 or Ski Ball. What's Area 51? That's the one that I wasn't familiar Is with that- either. It's a. I, I looked this up. It looks like it's a uh, like war type of arcade. Game. Oh yeah, it's one of those uh, one of those uh, shooter ones with the with the little play guns. Okay. What if I what if I replace that with Mortal Kombat? Oh, well, Mortal Kombat's gonna stay. Area Fifty One would have stayed on this one. Ms. Pac Man is the goat of all goats in this one. What were the last two? Pinball and ski ball. Oh, this is pin uh, ski ball. 
I hate ski ball. Ski really? ball's a waste of time. Oh. Yeah. yeah ski ball's a crowd no, pleaser, ball, man. No, oh, ski no, ball's I'm, stupid. I'm with Alex here. Ski I'm not a stupid. fan of ski ball. I would keep the other three for sure. I would have honestly kept Area 51 too over ski ball. I'm, I'm just not the biggest fan of ski ball. Ski ball's pointless. Ooh. Ooh, it's bowling for me, and I think bowling's pointless too. It, it, it's mini bowling, basically. Yeah, and I it's, hate bowling, so that makes a lot parlor, of sense. It's parlor game version of bowling. I, I would keep that for sure. Of course sure. you would. Um, I, I also think about, like, what is the easiest to play along with others? Um, oh, well, there's the difference between you and I. I would get rid of pinball. Pinball would be the one that I would get God, rid I of. God, I love pinball. I, it's it's fine. Man, I, so I many great pinball, pinball machines, too. I like all three of these other ones a lot better. Uh, one's got to go like the promotions for Tanner. Getting a solo show, becoming the marketing director, going into sales, or becoming an executive. Ooh. Interesting. I don't think I would have Tanner in sales. The other three all make sense. Are you coming up be a great salesman? I think Tanner actually probably would be a good salesman. Really? Yeah, I've convinced you guys to like me for a long time. I mean, and he's convinced us on segments that we didn't want to do before. Yeah, so see? Tanner's good at communication. I'll, I'll give him that. Um, I think he's, like, Tanner could do a solo show today if he wanted to. Um, probably marketing. I think exactly. I would probably take you him out of that You're one. probably right. Marketing would probably be the one. Marketing would, would probably be the one in this. That's probably. I think better. he's more. I think he's more in tune with on air and in sales with on air or like a program director style than he would be with marketing something. That's fair. Tanner, I'd probably agree with that. I think marketing would be. I'd love to be an executive. Are you kidding me? I'd love to be the boss. Yeah, That'd be great. I know that's true. Wouldn't we all, buddy? Tanner would be power hungry. Oh, uh, my God, yeah. Final yeah, Tanner would be Leo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, One's got to go. Ketchup for your cool. fries, crackers with chili, or powdered sugar on your French toast. You know what's great, by the way, Alex? A little bit of peanut butter. If you syrup, say peanut butter on your French toast, I will stab you. sugar on your French toast. No, oh, dude, you're ruining your French toast. It's delicious, You're ruining man. your French toast. Every bite. The next one is better than the last. It's that's great. Disgusting. That's disgusting. disgusting. Thanks, Tanner. So, ketchup for your fries, crackers with chili, or powdered sugar with your French fries. Ketchup for your fries. That's just a waste of French fries. There's so many better things to dip your French fries in than ketchup. Buffalo sauce with everything, man. Or ranch dressing. No, that's disgusting. It's white and gelatinous. Or barbecue. Barbecue sauce is good. Too. I I definitely say the ketchup with fries because even even if you don't have a sauce, you could have really good fries that don't need oh, anything yeah. else on them. If they're really good seasoned, gotta make them crunchy too. Chili, that you need that like crunch in there. You need the crackers and you definitely need the powder sugar for the uh, French toast. Now it's peanut butter the on the French toast. That's butter. just that's Trash. a mad that's a madman that's eating that. Coming up Psycho. in 15 minutes, we'll give you our final thoughts leading into this super wild card weekend. But coming up next, Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie going out to the Brown and Griffin Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend of the Voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, here on 101 ESPN. It is a big weekend for the St. Louis Blues. We'll talk about the inaugural Blues Hall of Fame class with Curbs here in just a little bit. But let's start with last night, Curbs. Uh, not the game you wanted to see. Some turnovers, especially in their own zone, that ended up uh, in their own net. That seems to be when this team plays poorly, the most common, a common, or the biggest thing that you see in common with the games that go wrong 
Is that a fair way to assess what went wrong? What's gone wrong for them this season? Uh, curbs. Yeah, I, I do. I think we've heard the coaching staff, uh, um, the majority of the times just constantly harping and talking about puck management. So yeah, to me, to me, that's, that's the big one. It, it's an interesting one. And we had an event and uh, a com- you know, a little uh, organizational thing with Scotty Bowman this morning. So I wasn't able to get to the locker room because, you know, for me, I'd, I'd, I'd walk up to Robert Thomas and, and ask what he saw and, and, and almost more because that that's a pass that he might make eight out of 10 times, you know, and, and it never gets touched. And it might've even sent uh, Pavel Butchnevich on a breakaway, but in this case it didn't, which is why I'm really inclined sometimes to just remind everybody that there, there's a whole other team with a high payroll of NHL players that are coached by a guy that's won two Stanley cups as a head coach that knows how to forecheck. And they did a great job, you know, forcing the blues into those mistakes. So, while you sit there in one breath and say, yeah, you, we've, we've got to quit making them, and that part is true. Um, boy, last night, I'm going to give Calgary a heck of a lot of credit. They, they put a forecheck on the Blues that made it difficult for them. And, you know, until the Blues commit to a couple of things like, you know, making the smart play, making the right play, the situational play when, when, when it's a certain score at a certain time in the game, and then commit to getting to the front of the net and getting shots to the goal, uh, I don't know that much changes. And I think you've got enough skill to be a good team but in, enough inconsistency also as well to keep you average, and, and that's kind of where they're sitting right now is somewhere in between there. You know, Curbs, I, I think that's the biggest thing that, that you've noticed in these losses in these last couple of, of games for St. Louis, going back to that Montreal one and then, of course, this one, is what you just mentioned there in terms of the, the shot selection. It, it just seems, and I know you've talked to Craig Bruby on pregame a lot about, you know, taking shots and if he's happy with the quality of shots, and he's kind of hemmed and hawed at it, but it, it just seems in certain games when the Blues aren't getting the production that they're looking for, they're just reluctant to take shots. Uh, reluctant to create. And, and well, when you say they're reluctant to take shots, it, it almost to me makes it sound like they're intentionally, uh, but like, like they're doing this intentionally. And I don't, I really don't think that's the case. I, I really think what you're seeing is some really good skilled players getting a lot more ice time in different situations than maybe they have in recent years or over the past few years. And, and, and I think what they're trying to do is make that, you just, they're trying to make the perfect play. And sometimes that perfect play doesn't exist, you know, and guys that know that they've got the skill to make good passes, but are trying to pass it all the way across the ice against NHL players that get deflected away. And we saw a lot of that the last couple, I think it's really more sometimes the attention to detail and then, you know, the willingness to live to fight another day, you know, instead of trying to make that home run pass, just keep it along the wall and make sure that your players are in a good spot defensively. And, you know, we talked with Scotty Bowman this morning, and he was talking about the year where the Blues, I think, only allowed like 176 goals that year, which is still or 175, something like that, which is still a, a franchise record o- over the course of a season. And Bobby Plager was always really proud of that record. Every year, anytime we the Blues would give up that goal that kept that record in place, it was almost like the Miami Dolphins undefeated team toasting each other. Bobby would come in, he goes, we're still holding the record. And, yeah, you'd laugh at him, but... Scotty knew that he goes, look, in those early days, we knew that other teams were better than us. He goes, but in the third period, we knew we had to lock it down. We had Glenn Hall, a goalie that could lock it down. We shortened up the bench defensively. We put Jimmy Roberts and Terry Crisp up as our fourth line. We rolled four defense. We rolled four lines. He was telling a story about this. But even back then, 50 years ago, 
They're talking about how you play good situational hockey that prevents the other team from scoring. And that's a commitment that so far this team hasn't been able to get full buy into in certain times of the game. And uh, that's, it's one of the challenges that this coaching staff has is to continue to drive that home until they see it consistently. Chris Kerber is the voice of the blues here on 101 ESPN curves. I just wanted to ask you a, a simple question what have you seen from Colton Pareko on the power play since he's got more ice time on that unit? Uh, not enough yet, but what I mean by that is I haven't seen enough of them on there yet. I, I honestly, I think that they're trying to keep that other unit out there just because of the different skill levels of those forwards. But honestly, uh, I want to see that. I want to see that other unit that gets out there um, a, a little bit more. We saw it a little bit there. You've got Kelly Rosen kind of manning it. Now that would become Nick Letty when he comes back and, and I got to think he's close to coming back or, or closer. So um, at that point, I, I think we've seen when Colton gets it, he's willing to shoot it. We saw him get an assist off that slap shot. I like him over on that far side. I honestly would like to see more of it. And if that other power play unit is too reluctant to shoot the puck, pull him after 60 seconds and get the other unit out there. I felt like last night, correct me if I'm wrong here, Curbs. I felt like there were multiple times though, where he didn't shoot it. And that's what, I think can be a little frustrating for fans is he's got that great shot, but if he's going to be in that spot on the unit, he's got to be willing to shoot it. Right. Yeah. But did you watch the passes that went to him? I don't know that any one of those passes was passed in a position where he could one time it. And he likes it kind of either just out in front of him or right level with him. When I talk to him about where he likes to receive those passes. And it's the one thing that, it, it it's one thing about, well, so, well, there's a couple of aspects of this brand. One, one is, one is the pass has to be a good enough pass the one time. The other one is, is Colton has to continue to get himself ready for that one-timer. I think Colton Pareko's been shooting the puck a lot more over the last series of games. You know, it may be, you know, some higher than others. But but in general, I think he's, he's shooting the puck a lot more. Uh, I actually thought last night, I thought Colton played a terrific game. I thought he was activating. He was so doggone good with the stick last night. He, he might have killed 10 plays on his own when that, that didn't develop into anything. So, and so uh, to me, it's still a learning process because he's just never received a, a lot of power play time over there, especially in that one spot that you're talking about. That like same thing when we talk about Cairo or some of these younger players just getting more time to learn how to do it. I just I just think you need more time. But I, I I've uh, I really haven't had much of an issue with his play or you know or, or decision making too much here over the last stretch of games. Chris Kerber, voice of the blues here on 101 ESPN. Final question. We'll get you out of here on this, Kerbs. Uh, we talked to Chris Pronger earlier today about the blues inaugural class going in this weekend. There's a ceremony on the ice tomorrow. I know you've got a dinner going on tonight as well. Glenn Hall, Red Bar- uh, Berenson, Scotty Bowman, Gary Unger all going in. And then, of course, all of the guys that already have their numbers, their names up in the rafters, automatically inducted into this first class. Kerbs, uh, I know this has been a long time coming. It's IRG last night on the post-game show with Alex talking about uh, all of the work that went into it. But for some of the listeners that are kind of curious about what tomorrow is going to be like, what can they expect if they're going to the game and looking forward to that ceremony on the ice? Well, we've got an event for season ticket holders that already know about that, that are coming to to one event that'll happen from about six to six 30, you know, but but for everybody else, you just want to be in your seats by, you know, by seven o'clock because the national anthem will come and then, They'll be introducing all these guys for a, a, a ceremonial puck drop, and it's going to be pretty neat to just I mean, to sit with Scotty Bowman for an hour this morning and hear him tell some early stories of this franchise and 
having had similar conversations with Red Berenson and Gary Younger, uh, and, and I was fortunate enough to be on the call when, you know, with these guys, when Tom Stillman told some of them that they were being, uh, that they had been voted into the, this first class. The reaction, honestly, almost always goes to the fans and, and just how great this fan base is and, and what it was like playing for them and what, it, what this city has meant to them. So uh, if this morning is any indication of the kind of stories and fun we're going to have tonight and that's going to be streamed live on Valley Sports uh, Midwest, uh, I, I think fans are in for a real treat. So looking forward to celebrating some amazing Blues history this weekend. Be a cool scene out at Enterprise Center. Uh, Alex Ferrario will have your pregame coverage for that one tomorrow beginning at 6 o'clock. We'll have your puck drop, of course, right here in your home for the Blues. 101 ESPN for Blues versus the Lightning tomorrow at 7. Curbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. Enjoy yourself tomorrow. and We'll talk with you again next week. All right, guys. Have an awesome weekend. Thanks, and we'll see you tomorrow at the rink. Absolutely. Same to you. That is Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues joining us here on 101 ESPN. Uh, looking forward to that tomorrow. It is cool. It's a little quirk scheduling wise, but uh, Pat Maroon being in town for this, the hometown kid that's yeah. going to be able to watch all of the uh, the history taking place at uh, Enterprise Center. I think that'll be a cool moment for him as well, I would have to imagine. Yeah, and I remember those heritage nights that they had a few years ago where they had goaltenders night and captains night and decades night. It was so cool to see all of those guys in the building. So this is this is just the start of something big that in five, six, seven years when it's going and you're talking about the Alexander Steens and the Jay Bowmeisters probably inducted in, uh, it's going to be cool to see all of those people in attendance. But to start off with this and have uh, Scotty Bowman in attendance and Berenson and Unger and then, of course, uh, Glenn Hall, who is uh, he's up there in age, so unfortunately he's not going to make it, but still... Uh, to have all of those guys in attendance, it's going to be a pretty cool thing. Coming up next, we'll finish the show out with some of our final thoughts going into this weekend for the NFL slate as it, it is a super wild card weekend here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Hendrickson and I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you can find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Let's go through uh, some quick hitters, if you will, for this upcoming super wild card weekend. Super duper. We've got six games, uh, five of which will take place before we start the show on Monday. We'll talk about the Cowboys versus the Bucks plenty on the Monday show as well. Guys, what does this weekend mean for Dak Prescott? Like, are you going to look at him? Oh, Dak's on Monday. We'll talk about that on Monday. (laughs) Take two. Seahawks, Bills, Ravens. All three of those teams are at least a nine-point underdog going into this weekend. If you had to bet on one of them, Alex, against the spread, so they cover the the spread, who would you go with? Seahawks, Bills, or Ravens? Bills are the favorite. God bless it. Take three. Seahawks, Seahawks, Ravens. Dolphins Dolphins or Ravens. If I had to take Dog, gone it, man. Boy, you need the thank God the weekend. T G I F, right, BK? Did you hear that first question that I asked the curbs? Because I wish oh, I did. No, I wish I wasn't there for it. I wanted to you know that old uh, wanna get away moment. <laughs> you need a Snickers. Why well, me? You need a Snickers, BK. Uh out of all three of those, Seahawks, Dolphins, Dolphins Ravens. Ravens. You want the matchups? 
I got no. those for you. <laughs> Give me the lines again. I'll go Seahawks, and I I don't agree really? with Tanner, yeah. but I think they oh. out of the out of those three, <laughs> out of those three, the Seahawks have the better chance of all of them. Yeah, I'm with Alex on this one. Seahawks are going to win this one outright. Nope, never said that. Yeah, I agree. Never Alex. said They're going to win this one outright. They're going to stop the run, and they're going to play man coverage. They're going to force Purdy to beat them on the deep ball, and he's not going to be able to. Purdy okay. kind of short circuits. It's going to be our story coming <laughs> yeah, into Monday. Kind of like BK on a question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, touche. I'm going Ravens. Um, I, I don't think that they're going to end up winning, certainly, but they've got the defense to at least keep this thing close. It's the third time that they've played between two divisional opponents. Maybe they make this thing ugly, and it ends up being like – 20 to 13, which means that they technically cover the spread. If you're the Chargers and you lose this weekend against the Jaguars, see you, Staley. Are you firing Staley to hire Sean Payton on Monday? Absolutely. Even if I – I got to win the Super Bowl, I think, if I'm not going to fire Brandon Staley. Like, Staley is just – I think if they win this weekend, he's he's – I don't think so. I I don't think winning one game in the playoffs offsets the – weird season that you had as a head coach for a team that should have been so much better offensively. So he's got to do a lot for me to not sit there and say, like, your job is safe for next year. Uh, See, I think they win. He's safe because, like, in the regular season, they were dealing with injuries and not injuries that, like, he could prevent, unlike the one in Week 17 with Mike Williams hurting his back in a pointless game that he should not have been playing in. If they lose, either because their defense is bad, one, that's on him because he calls the defense and he game plans things, or two, if the offense struggles because they're missing one of their best weapons because, again, he made Mike Williams play in that game, yeah, I can see where they fire him. But I think if he wins, he's safe. But a loss, I I think we're talking about Sean Payton going to L.A. That's where I'm at as well. If he loses this game, just call Sean Payton, tell him, what what's the number? What do you need us to pay you? We'll go ahead and get that done. Final thing, we'll get out of here, go to the fast lane. The single biggest storyline on Monday after this NFL weekend is what, Alex? Uh, the Cincinnati Bengals looking like a team that's pushing for a Super Bowl. I think that's going to be the biggest thing I'm going to take away from this weekend. I, I think Cincinnati is out for blood this weekend. I think you're going to be looking at a Cincinnati Bengals team that should make Chiefs fans very nervous. I think mine's going to be, are the the Jags a team that could go on a run in the AFC? If they beat the Chargers and they do it convincingly, I think there's going to be a lot of people that will buy on board with that offense and say, ooh, are they this year's Bengals that you you didn't think would go on a run but could surprise us and go to the Super Bowl? And for me, I'm going with Bills versus Bengals. People are going to say that is going to be the AFC championship game uh, more so than whoever the Chiefs play. I think the winner of that game, the big buzz conversation is, is the winner of that game going to win the Super Bowl this year? Bills versus Bengals. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll talk to you guys on Monday at 11 a.m. Look, excuse me, we'll be back on Monday at 10 a.m. We've got an extended version of the show. Talk to you guys then. Have a great weekend, St. Louis. Brandon. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.